and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man who related far too much to a character having a midlife crisis than a 26-year-old ever should, Duncan Nickel. Wow, Duncan, all the fun band jokes I thought you were going to come up with, you know, um, and I'm on bass guitar, Duncan Nickel, or um, I'm surrounded by groupies, Duncan Nickel, but no, you had to go for the sad one. Because that's what this book does. It balances sadness with the fun. That's what makes it great. Oh, but let's not get into that too soon. <laughs> no, let's not get into that too soon. Duncan, it's a very special episode. I- is it? It is. It is. It is quite special. Um, it, Do you know why it's special? Uh, have I forgotten our anniversary or something? No, no. Um, I, I actually don't know when our anniversary is because we started recording for like two months and then published our episodes to make sure we had a backlog. So I think we started maybe in January, or is it February? Please don't. This feels like a, a massive quiz. Um, I don't know. I don't know either, man. I have no idea. I have to go way back into our Facebook chat to figure that out. But no, it's not our anniversary, um, nor is it our Christmas special, although that's coming up. I don't know why I said that. We don't have a Christmas special planned. But what we did have planned, or at least hope to have planned, was something a bit like what's happening this episode. Duncan, we are going to have a guest this episode. Sorry? A man called Nicholas Eames will be joining us for an interview. So what? <laughs> you doing alright, man? It's... I'm waiting for the punchline to this joke. There is no punchline to this joke. Um, there is no trick. Uh, I reached out to him, asked him if he'd be interested in an interview, and he said sure. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, you responded to my email last night. And you had to tell me live recording? <laughs> yes, I wanted to see your reaction. Jesus! That's amazing! I- I'm so glad that I have positive things to say about the book now. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> Very awkward otherwise. There, were, there, were, there is a reality where I would be like, Listen, I can't tell Duncan ahead of time because I don't want to affect his opinion of the book. If I hadn't, you hadn't come to such strong feelings, I might have saved that for later. Could have been funnier, but... Anyhow, so, Dunk, what music do you like to listen to? Oh, okay. I knew this question was going to come up. I've got to have to have it. Because we, um, you know, this is a book about bands. And I realise a bit of a blind spot for me is I don't really know what music you enjoy. So, um, my musical tastes are, um, limited. Alright. Which is to say, um... If you want me to summarise my musical taste, the best way I can do it is say, um, I'll, I'll put on BBC Two or BBC Local. And whatever's playing, that's what's on in my car. Wow, a very passive listener. Incredibly do you, uh, so. Do you, like, lis- do you listen to music on Spotify? I do not. Uh, the most I listen ah. to on Spotify is I'll type in the words uh, running music. Mm. And then I'll go for a run. That's it. Gotcha. I felt like I missed so much comedy in this book. So much commentary <laughs> as well. I I don't think... It's not quite what I expected. So, we are talking about the book Kings of the Wild. And the central premise of Kings of the Wild is sort of a joke. What if adventuring parties, the likes of which you see in fantasy novels and games of Dungeons and Dragons... What if they, since they are bands of adventurers, 
What if they were treated the exact same as musical bands? I think it's a fun premise and one that I've really kind of connected to as like a, a D&D player. Because mm. one of the things that I always like to get out of D&D is the sense of your characters becoming famous. Mm. And I was like, yes, this is it. This is what you want to feel when, mm-hmm. or at least what I want to feel when I want to go on that power trippy, heroic fantasy adventure in D and D. So that spoke to me massively. Yeah, and there's this, there's this certain. And I was really surprised that whilst the joke is really solid and it's played for a lot of laughs, it didn't actually end up going a lot of the directions I thought it was going to go. But I actually struggle to identify places in which, like, the genre of music which the band, Saga, is sort of meant to represent came up. I kind of assumed they'd be a heavy metal band. But as I went through the book, you know, nothing about them really spoke to the type of music they were supposed to represent. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's difficult to say that they're obviously a rock band. See, I felt that slightly. I did get when we were introduced to the new bands, I sort of got the vibe because the way they just, their dress was described... So the new styles, uh, you know, this one they talk about. It's like... Right, because when you start to see, like, this, this clown makeup, as they put it, like, that's about the members of Saga saying, like, the music ain't authentic anymore. It's all weird. It's all about showmanship. It's not about the music. It's about performance, about spectacle, you know. And they're making jokes, basically, about, like, uh, hair metal, Twisted Sisters, uh, Poison, um, Kiss... I think there's one other direct allegory which I freaking loved in this and that was they go to a ruined city and there's a statue of the uh, ancient hero who was very fat called El Avis. Ah, that one passed me by. I, I didn't even, that one didn't even clock with me. So they are there, but you're right. It's, I think it's much more played for individual jokes then I've then robi- ro- uh, then woven into the kind of subtext of the whole narrative, or at least what's woven into the whole narrative is much more. It's a much lighter touch. It's not as direct or as pa- it's not parables for actual individual bands in the real world. It's more just a vibe, a feeling. So the right and. Even when there, like, are literal references to real-life bands like The Police or The Eagles or whatever, it's not like you need to know the joke. Like, if you if it never registered with you, there'd still be so much stuff in this book which would still be funny and it would still make sense as a story even if you're not in on the joke. Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of jokes that I just don't get um, and I have no idea that I don't get them because I don't know that I don't get them. So let's actually crack into this, um, you know, the, the core of this book. Uh, we'll lay out the premise and then we'll talk about, you know, what it's like to go on the adventure with this band of heroes. So, Duncan, uh, you summarized it before at the end of last week. Would you like to hear my take on what I think happens in this book? I'm interested to see how this could be different from my take, but go ahead. Kings of the Wild is about um, a former band of adventurers. As we've said, they are an analogous to a former rock band. Their glory days have done. The band has broken up over uh, creative differences and everyone's gone their own ways. 
in that way, it sort of resembles the classic sort of documentary about uh, a rock band's life. Where are they now? Our adventure kicks off when our, when our main character, our perspective character, Clay Cooper, a former member of this band, and the, the quiet one of a bunch, the bass player, if you will, um, is visited by the band's former frontman, the best adventurer in the world, you know, the, the handsome, charismatic leader of the group, comes to him in a pitiable state. His daughter, against his will, has embarked on her own life adventure, joined her own band, and is in big, big trouble. Uh, a horde of monsters, the likes of which the world hasn't seen in millennia, has surrounded the city she's in, thousands of miles away, is laying siege to it, and she is in a hopeless situation. And in his desperation, Gabe needs to get the band back together for one last ride. Subsequently, it's a book about getting old, trying to relive the glory days, um, the change which happened to us as we get older and more responsible, and it's also about a bunch of really goofy adventures. Yeah, I think that Roughly follows how I would describe it, just with more words. Let's have some more words right now, Duncan. Duncan, how do you like this book? I finished off our last session of Book Club by saying this book was fun, fun, fun. I think I said about six times in a row. And some of them probably even got cut out. Um, I think this book's really fun. I love this book. I actually, in fact, I adore this book. This mm -hmm. book was a shot in the arm. Yep. Uh, for my reading habits, for my... Just, I think I'd read them very large epic style bits of fantasy uh, on the run-up to picking this book up mm. uh, this was a holiday book for me i remember it very distinctly i was in the seaside town of lyme regis mm -hmm. and i cracked this book out in three days sitting in my hotel room looking out to mm -hmm. a stormy sea and it was just it was such a ride i was so taken aback um by the momentum i felt in this text but the balance of mm -hmm. what i consider to be quite good comedy but still mm -hmm. hitting some poignant notes that yes. never felt undercut uh, by the comedy and the points they never, they never un uncut each other. Yeah, I really felt that Nicholas Eames... Yeah, there are three things this book has to balance. It has to balance the, the comedy, because it is a comedy. It has to balance the pathos, because, you know, it has a lot of, like, emotional beats it has to hit and emotional themes it has to handle. And it has to be a fun adventure. In my personal opinion... It does take a while to get onto that third seat, but when it does, boy, does he do it well. I think at a certain point, when they really get the adventure rolling, you're like, this is just a straightforward, good, fun, fantasy adventure. I couldn't agree more. I think we've snuck into uh, my opinion on the book, and I, I also remember my first encounter with this series. It was when I was in America, so it was like three years ago. I was looking at bookshelves and I thought, wow, this is a really good cover. Um, and I started I started reading the back. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll check this out. And, uh, and then my girlfriend came along because I remember we were buying her first Dungeons & Dragons dice, which was very exciting for her. And so I put the book back, went down, we paid for it, and I forgot about the book. I, did, I never forgot that it was out there, waiting. And I knew that one day I'd pick it up because it looked pretty cool. And that book was Bloody Rose. So I'm very glad I didn't buy that book because I would have ruined the ending of this one. The cover work, you know, let's do a shout out to the cover work on both these books. So I've got the, 
artist name here. Oh, come on. Yep, Duncan forgot again. It's Richard Anderson, the same cover artist for The Gutter's Prayer. He also forgot it back then. Huh. And I won't gonna lie, both these artworks were ones that sold the books to me off the shelf. Like, seeing this, this is eye-catching among its peers. It is a very... It's a good bit of art. Upon reflection, I don't know if it actually matches the book. I think it could have been a more exciting book cover. It's a very, um... The actual, like, artwork itself is good. You know, the line work, the depiction of characters, the slightly blurry quality of the faces so that you can attach details on their appearance. But fundamentally, I don't think it expresses much about the book other than the fact it's about four men. The, the strongest part of it is the font of Kings of the Wild, which is the, um, which is the font, it's the Iron Maiden font. Um, but it doesn't look like an Iron Maiden cover. Like, in my opinion, like, if I was, like, directing this, the art direction for this book, I would have said, we want it to look like an Iron Maiden cover. Big and dramatic and bold. You know, like, a skeleton in a straitjacket. Or let's have a look like a meatloaf cover. Like, flying on the on a bat above a horde of monsters whilst, like, flashing your swords. Like, well, that kind of feels like a more appropriate aesthetic for this book, in my personal opinion. I'm not going to necessarily disagree with you. Uh, I could definitely could see this more as, like, a Frank Princessa sort of, like, old Conan covers kind of vibe. But, no, actually, no, I was going to have a counter-argument because the thing, I think you're right there, that I think this cover, more than anything, particularly in the colour palette chosen, gets across the pathos to the situation more. It's got that mm. kind of the sort of dreariness. Like you can I look at that and go, yeah, these are some old men who are sort of dragging mm. themselves through the mud for one last go. But it, it does miss out the fun, sure. the glory and the adventure mm. and the way, hey, let's go boys. Which does come into this book and is a part of why it's mm. so fun. So Duncan, a band is made up of its characters and uh, I really want to talk about them because I constantly say throughout this book club if the characters don't work then nothing in the book is going to work it doesn't matter how extensive your world building is it doesn't matter how cool your magic system is your characters need to be the central point and it's also the strongest suit in this card's deck i'm weighing that up and i think i'm gonna Mm. have to come down it with a hard agree again Mm -hmm. obviously clay cooper as the leading character this very i think it's Mm -hmm. very nice to have him not be the front man i think you i won't say you could easily make it but i think i can Mm -hmm. see how it might be tempting or almost logical to have gabe as our sure he's the big hero pov character because ultimately he's the one for the that's right he's the the one with the emotional states here yeah it's gabe's daughter is the it, it it rotates around gabe's need to get his daughter back and Clay initially is extraneous to that. It's not his daughter on the line. You know, if he wanted to, he could walk away. He has a good reason at the start of his book to refuse the call. He's, an, he's, old, he's old now. He doesn't need to go on these adventures. He has a daughter of his own, Tally. Mm-hmm. But then that's kind of what this novel's about. It's not about rescuing the damsel in distress, mm-hmm. rescuing your, the daughter. It's about being old and going out That's and right. helping your old bandmates one more mm-hmm. time because they're yeah, your old bandmates. Such a, there's such a heart to this book. And that's why it's so such a good choice to have Clay 
be the central figure because Clay is it embodies so much of what makes this book work. He's weary and he's he's slowing down uh, and he's he's even pretty mean when he has to be. But fundamentally, he's a guy with a good heart, solemn, gray as an old oak. But he's plodding along one last time to see this event through. I think there's something really uh, kind of interesting in making it that Clay's kind of mm-hmm. special item of choice. Sure. Whereas Gabe has his legendary sword. Uh, Ma- yep. Matrick has his, you know, his yeah. daggers. But for Clay, it's his shield. That's the role he I plays know. in Isn't this. I know, isn't that great? I know. I, when I first read this, I was a bit like, uh, is this like a Captain America thing? Is he going to be throwing that about and like bashing people's brains in with the edge of that? No, uh, But it's not. not. I love the fact that, you know, his thing in the group is that he's a, he's a support character. You know, like, if you put his class, and this is very much like a D&D book, if you gave him a class, he would absolutely be a fighter. But he's a con-based fighter. His job, he's the tank. He gets in the way, and he keeps his friends alive so that they can win the fight. That's why he's a bassist, because he's the most important part of the band, but the most understated one as well. Wait, you telling me in D&D, it's not all about the guy who gets the killing blow? You guys do not know that Duncan is not joking right now. No, Duncan, there are other things you can actually do in the fight, aside from just get the most damage possible. Uh, Also, uh, absorb the most damage possible. I hold both titles. You do not hold both titles, you son of a gun. This man will (laughs) leave his friends to die if it means getting the final blow. Absorb the most damage, my arse. Anyway, enough about my excellent exploits as our party's lead man. I was such a good paladin. So, let's look at those other characters. Because my actual favourite isn't Clay or Gabe. My favourite was, uh, oh, I'm going to call him Mog. Moog. Is it Moog? It's Moog. Moog is so good. He's so fun. Moog is the sorcerer. Uh, he is the wizard uh-huh. of the band. He is the wizard. And he comes with everything just right. He is just adult enough, just kind of quirky. I don't know if he literally had a pointy hat on him. Mm-hmm. He does at one point. He eventually finds a pointy hat. It is amazing. And he's all about reaching into his bag of holding and like frantically trying yep. to pull something out that's going to be helpful. And I love... I just It's so fantastic. Every fight, every fight, he spends almost all of it rummaging around in his bag, trying to find, um, trying to find that thing that will just solve a fight at once. He's he's a perfect representation of the player in D anD D who just refuses to use like their attack moves and always wants to solve like solve the fight like it's a math problem. Like if I just find the right maneuver, I could solve all of these problems at once. And there's like a 50-50 shot that he will save the day immediately or he will make everything so much worse. And that is fantastic. He has so much chaotic energy. It's beautiful. But again, the balance of that kind of comedy of this character against his his personal story, Moog, he... Yeah. The story behind Moog is that he is trying to fight the great disease of this world, the rot. And mm-hmm. you just sort of get it when you travel the wild. The Heartland Wild is a massive mm-hmm. forest that divides up sort of the kingdoms of these worlds um, and what they have to traverse mm-hmm. to go and rescue Gabe's daughter. And Moog's... And this this is... I found this so wonderfully done. 
Moog's husband of years past went out when they were mm-hmm. adventuring, got the rot. And Moog dedicated his life trying to find a cure um, to try and save his husband, but he never could. So sadly died, and now he's just dedicated so much of his life now to curing this this incurable disease. It's and again, like you say, it's the balance and tones because it's a very very serious moment for a for a goofy character, which means that you can have these moments of of humor, and you can have these moments of pathos because Moog has the rot, and he knows he's going to die, and he has to keep it secret from one member of the band because if he does, his best friend would be too sad to adventure. And um, the way in which that storyline plays out in this book, as this this slight undercurrent, it's really impressive that he's able to take this whole band and sort of give them uh, satisfying re- resolutions to, um, to their... Um, Character arc story. To their arcs. Uh, yeah, man, that was... That was <laughs> It is really impressive. This is the one that, before my reread, stuck out in my mind, though. And there's a particular scene with Moog. Mm-hmm. And we're jumping into spoilers, as we do at Book Club. Uh, we assume that you've either read the book, or uh, just on for the tea and biscuits mm-hmm. and conversation. There's a scene in this book where Moog finally finds the cure. And mm. you're reading it, and he has this read, he's like, wait, am I cured? And he pulls off his boot, takes off his sock to look at his foot where mm-hmm. he has the rot. And he sees that it's been cured up. It's cleaned mm. away. And I love the fact that what Nicholas seems to decide to do is have Moog break down in tears. Because he realised that the disease was mm-hmm. curable and he could have saved his husband. Yep. And the yeah. emotional punch of that was... Mm-hmm. It was astounding. Even the second time round, it was a uh, finish the chapter, mm-hmm. put the book down, go make a cup of tea. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's it, it's a very well. Exactly. Could have easily have gone for like exuberation, like that. Everyone else is on the verge of mm-hmm. is because I definitely got the feeling. Um, I don't know if uh, the character of Matty, who's the one he's trying to keep it from, is in that scene. Uh, he knows at this point, but you're thinking, oh, is this going to be the mm-hmm. bit? He's going to whip it. It's going to be cured, and then Matty's going to run in. It's going to be a big hug. It's going to be this like celebratory scene. And then to kind of level mm. it down with that kind of pain. And, oh, don't bear in mind, we, have, we don't meet the husband as a character. We don't meet Frederick. He's not no. in this book. Mm. But all we get to see, though, is Moog mourn him and how it's impacted everything kind mm. of going forwards. And that just makes... I don't know. I'm really struggling to describe it. It's how yeah, it emotionally right. touched it's, me. No, you've, you, you've, done it, you've done it adequately. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely way to sort of ground Moog and his goofiness and his wackiness and how much fun he is. Um, I, you got, I would recommend reading this book purely for Moog, honestly. He's so enjoyable. Um, it's also great that he's like the most enthusiastic to go on this dangerous quest. Like every, Clay is the hardest person to convince because Clay is like, I have a wife and daughter. I can't go adventuring anymore, Gabe. And he eventually gets... Oh, persuaded to go. We definitely have to talk about um, Clay. I want me to let's round back to Clay after we talk about why everyone goes in their adventure. So the reason Moog wants to go, it, the, the, the reason Moog wants to go is to cure the rot. He's like, and he's fucking so excited to go. He's like, yes, we're going to go on our adventure. It's going to be great. The voice actor in this book did such a good job with Moog. He did a great job overall, but Moog, he just... Fucking nailed it. Good job to you, man. Um, but doesn't that just make Moog, though, so much more 
I don't know if it's sad's the word, and I really felt on this reread because I knew where we were going and his mm-hmm. ultimate reaction to the cure of the rot. Mm-hmm. It made on my reread all of these scenes where he's like, "Let's go on an adventure," and in the back of my head, it was just so much more conscious of, "Oh, Moog, like is this you kind of going? What have I got to lose?" Oof. Like every time he was Oof. just like, "Let's run off into danger," I was just there like, "Yeah," because you're literally standing there thinking, "My husband's gone, no, incurable disease." I'm going to die. No, man. I, I don't think that's the case. I think Moog was just as crazy and les, les fair about danger in his youth as well. I think that's just Moog being Moog. It's a great name, too. Moog. Well, I hope so. Uh, Moog's excitement when he also meets the owlbears was yes! so heartwarming. Oh, God, it's so... That was so fun. I was beaming ear to ear when he found the owlbear. And it's such a great one-two punch. It's such a great one-two punch because a, a more asshole author, I feel like, would have played out that scene differently. The owlbear shows up, and this happens in canon. They see it, and he goes, it's extremely dangerous. And they end the chapter. And the start of the next chapter is Ganelon pulling his axe out of its head. Like you didn't have to kill it, um, and that would be where some people would end it. But because obviously Nick is a cool guy, he says he he delivers another punch, which is say, "Oh, the Albert had babies," which is the classic dungeon master move. And then he has Moog take in the babies, and they go on the resty adventure with them, with him lugging around these two adorable baby Albers in his rucksack, and they're there for every subsequent scene. Okay, talk about classic dungeon master moves. I'm going to call out my DM now. Geordie, do you remember that time you emotionally manipulated us? (laughs) You're going to have to be more specific, my friend. Do you remember the first time you ever emotionally manipulated us? We once had an adventure. This has stuck with me because this is my first interaction of this thing happening. It was with Geordie and we had to go on a quest. Uh, Goblins were attacking the village. So we went to, to clear out the goblin cave. Only to get there... And there was a room and we're like, we think there are goblins in the next room. Uh, but we had like a villager, a local villager who come along with us. And we'd given him a sword and a shield. And we were like, okay, we'll send him in first and then we'll go in. Oh man, this is starting to come back to me actually. So he did. And then Geordie goes, yeah, he, he killed them all. He was, this was an epic fight. We're like, what? No, we thought he might like just have the first initiative. They might jump him and we could get surprised. And he's like, no, he killed them all. And then we go into the room. And we find out that all the goblins had actually been, like, in chains and were being used as slaves. And we'd literally just sent a guy in to murder them all. And what we were meant to do was go in, realise they were all enslaved and have pity. But we didn't know the that. that this has had to come back to me, but it stayed very present in your mind. It means that, um... All <laughs> oh of them. Oh, dear. Um... Goblins are meant to be just yes, even a monsters. in this book. And one I feel like actually... Kind of isn't explored enough, but because I, I, I assume that this is what Bloody Rose is about, the sequel. Um, there's a big theme in this book about how as much as the book indulges in the classic let's go on an adventure, let's fight some monsters fun, and it is fun. Um, it also says, you know, a lot of these monsters are literally just people and are being seen and are just sort of being genocided. And it's kind of fucked up that we just go on these adventures uh, and, you know, slaughter these villages of orcs and trolls and stuff when they're people too. And I kind of feel like the book does have its cake and eat it too in this regard, because they sort of make this realisation, and then they keep going. Like, they know that Last Leaf kind of has a point, but because he's a psycho, they need to stop him. 
And at the end of the book, I kind of wish they'd had a little bit more about, like, Matty's now is the king of somewhere. Is, is he going to do anything about, like, trying to end this stuff? But, like, that doesn't seem to be happening because, like, Bloody Rose is happening and there are still adventuring bands killing monsters. So, I, I, I kind of feel like... I mean, As someone who has uh, finished Bloody Rose, um, that's a very good point, Jordy. Interesting. We might talk about that another time. So, let's talk about Matty. Now, uh, seeing that you bring Matty. him up. I do like Matty. Matty is a fun character. He's um probably, aside from um after Moog, he's probably the most outwardly comedic character. The difference is, is that we're laughing at him instead of with him. <laughs> this is where the author's mean side comes out, I think. Okay. So, Matty was the rogue of the group. Yeah. Jewel-building daggers. He was the mm-hmm. finest thief in the city before they met. And Matty, after all his adventuring, he did the greatest thing. He stole the heart of a princess. He yeah. won himself the kingdom. And Great. now he is yeah. miserable <laughs> and sad. Yeah. I love that Um, it, it, it's a really good choice to have um, one of the adventurers end up becoming a king. Because it's a classic end to an adventurer. Going straight back to Conan the Barbarian. So yeah, it's a really good thing to play with. And a big question becomes, how do you persuade a man who's become king to abandon his responsibilities and abandon his life of luxury uh, to come with you on your dangerous, sure-to-die quest? And it's a really good answer. It goes to some weird places, though. I found it very funny. The whole scene leading up to it is so weird. They're fighting in Moog's tower. Moog's, um, has a a magical erectile dysfunction cure, which they break over someone's head. So for the rest of the scene, they're fighting, but all of them have big old hogs. They accidentally teleport into Matty's bedroom to fight some assassins. And then as they all wake up, and as Matty wakes up and sees them all doing this, he goes, you gotta get me the fuck out of here. Which is a great end to a chapter, but it goes to some weird places after that. So, Matty's predicament yes. is that his wife, Lilith, yes. lovely bit of naming there, is mm. not the nicest. And uh, they have five children, and the only thing that Matty is certain of is that none of them are his. Yeah. This, this is where it gets a bit weird. I don't know, man. There's some shit going on in this book. Uh, so, there's a lot of jokes about Maddie being a cuckold. Um, I'm sure it plays to a certain crowd very well. Uh, I didn't particularly find it any that, that funny. I like the fact that Maddie still loves his kids, even though they're not his. Um, that was nice. That was nice. It was, that was a tender moment. Um, the fact that Lilith is this, uh, adultering harpy who wants him dead... I found it more, let me think, I found it more that, I like the fact that Matty is shown to be a good king and like a good person. And in many respects, he's that was too surprising. good. You know, if he much earlier on in his kingship career had just went, okay, um, I'm going to murder my queen now. He can't remove himself mm. out of this. But the fact that he's just like, oh, I'm just going to come down to the dinner table, put up with this, look after my kids. Not my kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, his kids. He sees. Oh, it's so nice. It's very wholesome. 
And I... That, that That is wholesome. What isn't as wholesome, and I'm not saying the book has to be wholesome in any way, and I feel like this scene would have played better if it was in isolation, but the thing about... And I don't really like this as much as a part of a book, is that um, a lot of stuff in, in these particular scenes, some of the jokes land really well. Um, I, I, maybe it's just that I don't see the joke in the fact that none of Maddie's kids are his. I don't find it offensive in any way, but like it's not like that. But I just don't find it that funny. Like I don't see the joke. For me, um, just to expand on that point, um, I did find this funny. And I think the joke that I liked to get out of this, okay. it's not just that none of the kids are his, it's that it's obvious none of the kids are, are his. And although, like... Yeah, I did like some of the descriptions that one of, some of his kids are redheads and one has dark skin. And I went, what race is Maddie? Before the revelation. And I don't... So I, I appreciated that. And do you not find the idea of um, one of the princes just being a redhead and so obviously not his kid? Um, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. I see where the joke is coming in here. Um, no, that one passed me by. The point being is that all of Lilith's various bodyguards at some point have been uh, her lover. Basically, here's my main problem, and it's the fact that this scene doesn't exist in isolation. So of our three main heroes who have gone on to get married, to women, that is, and whose marriages we see as part of the text, we don't see Frederick and Moog's marriage, that's in the past, he's a widower, even Ginny, Clay's beloved wife, who is basically shown to be a saint by the book, is still subject to this kind of boomer, ugh, my wife attitude. You know what I'm saying? There's a scene where they go to our council and someone says to Clay, who loves his wife and whose wife saved him from being a much worse man, says, Clay Cooper, I, I thought you were dead. And Clay goes, close, married. And I went, that doesn't make sense for Clay. Clay is sardonic, but he, re- he, re- he worships the ground his wife walks on. I don't think he'd say that. The only way I can kind of, and not that I have to defend every point or come up with a constant counterpoint, would be to suggest is that, you know, that kind of links into the culture that these men have. Sure, the, the performance of masculinity. Yeah, and that, to be quite honest, I, I don't think it's our character for all of our, the members of Saga to be trapped by the performance of masculinity, apart from Moog, who's amazing. Nope, I, I, compl- I, completely, I completely appreciate that. It's not a problem that Clay is like that. It's a problem with the women in this book. And I have to say, that is kind of a thing that drags this book down a bit. Like, I really feel like, I kind of feel like you have this problem in this book where... Basically, every woman in this, in this book is either has their, their, their appearance or their sexual chastity commented on in ways which I'm like, could you not do a little bit more variety? Um, I'm going to bring up you Jane know? of the Steel Carrows as a counterpoint. Yeah, Jane is the exception. Not I was Jane. about to say, I think uh, Jane is a, starts off as a bandit who robs them early on mm-hmm. and eventually becomes another mercenary yep. band herself leading the seal the silk arrows but you are you, you are missing out on the fact that she robs them twice on separate occasions which is very funny 
But no, I, I see what you're coming from. Even with Ginny, who's meant to be sort of the the idealistic wife, there's still that element of, oh, I've got to get home for my missus. Got to leave the pub early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, exactly. I'm not saying that that's wrong, or I'm unhappy for that to be included. I just think between the other three female yeah, marriages like his, of so Saga... The, the three marriages are one married to a nag, one married to a to a former groupie turned junkie, and the other one to an adulterer. Like, come on. I would have really you appreciated know? if maybe one of them, like, and this could have, this I know it's a bit complex because you've got the character of their booker, but I would like if someone was like maybe like their financier or just one of them was someone who was already a little bit more accomplished. Like, if Clay with Ginny, if Ginny was like maybe slightly less than the nag, but. I don't want to say she's an act. She's not. Because he's trying to have, he's trying to have Ginny be the good one. You know, he's trying to have her be the one you got to get back to, and the one that you know is the right person for you. Um, but so why is she anyway? Like, I don't want to hammer him on this point. And here's the thing. Here's a slight giveaway. I've started reading Bloody Rose after this book, and I think he got the memo because it's really different. The way in which that book talks about women and that book centers around feminine stories is so different to this book. So I feel like he indulged in, you know, the fact that it's about a rock band. Rock bands are famous for having bad wives, you know, like that's a whole convention. My dad and I have a joke. If we see an old band you know, coming back for one last tour after their last one last tour. It's probably because they had a couple of divorces and they really need, they really need to pay for, you know, their mansions, you know? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Whenever I see a celebrity um, suddenly do an advert for something completely random, you're like, oh, you got divorced, mate. <laughs> so in Vegas, just uh, PG tips, you're like, oh, there's there a divorce. really should be a... There really should be a character in this book who's basically the Elton John who will not stop having last tours. Like, it's my last one, I promise. It's my goodbye tour. That actually would be really quite incredible. I think that would work nicely. Um, do you know what? That was actually, th- that's not in this book, but I would have loved to see that. I think that would have been a, a great joke if they had um, none of them like sell products. Like, if there was like one of them got like book for endorsement. Let's hit on some more of our characters. Should we hit Gamelon? Ga- is it Gamelon or Ganelon? Ganelon. 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 So Ganelon. Ganelon is the fearsome fighter. He is, in many respects, the most kind of actively monstrous of the party. He's the barbarian of a group. Do you know what? Why did I just say that? that is, why have I not drawn the parallels? Everyone else on it, yeah, wizard, fighter. Uh, I was like, is he just another fighter, though? Well, he's the barbarian he's of barbarian. the group. And what he brings to the party, I think, is that a lot of them, I think, are getting this more, like, rounded edges. They're like, oh, you know, they've got their humans on the inside. You know, they're kind of... But when they get in the fighting zone, this is the one you're like, mm, he's a bit scary. He's needed. Like, they need him to be a fighting band. But you can't... You almost look at him and go, oh, you don't want him in peace time. Yeah, he absolutely. Fit in? He's, um... That, I mean, that's a fucking theme that we hit nail at the end of this book, which is, yeah. But, um, yeah, Ganelon is this, is this combination of the member of the band who's a, who's the wild card. Like, this would be the guy who would have, like, a serious drug problem, 
um, and that would like would, would come in and out of rehab. And in the adventuring party terms, he's like the most chaotic neutral character. He's the one who starts fights. He doesn't have to. He's 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 the player who just really likes fighting. Like that's his favorite part of the game. He doesn't care about role play. And when it's time for other people to role play, he will sit down and he will have a drink, maybe play a game of chess, um, and wait for the axes to be drawn again. Um, the beautiful moment of when they're in the pub and it's Clay and Galon. Mm-hmm. And Clay's just like, everything's okay. He's still holding his drink. When he puts his drink down, nah, that's when he's going right. to pick up his that weapon. Was good, that was a really funny joke. I remember that. That's good. Uh, what Ganelon brings, which is special about the group, is that Ganelon is the reason why they broke up. And that's a, that's a question that hangs in the air for a large part of this book. The question is, why did Saga break up? Did they have a falling out? You know, did they um did they have creative differences? Did someone go on a solo career? Is this a police situation? Is this a take that situation? Which one is Robbie Williams? And the answer is none of them are Robbie Williams. This is the uh, one member of the band got arrested. Uh, end of a band. Except it's not just being arrested. It's being super arrested. Because Ganelon after killing someone he should not have killed, was frozen in stone. He was petrified. And that has an interesting impact. When they go to pick him up, he's the last member of the band to recruit. He's the one who has a grudge out against him. He's good reason to dislike him. And when they unfreeze him, he's as young as when they ended the band. The rest of them... They never actually put a precise number on it, but I guess they're in, like, their late 50s, early 60s. Um, he- Do you? I think they're younger than that. Okay. Um, given the kind of fantasy setting. But then again, I don't know how long they toured beforehand. So it's been about years, 19 10 years, years of touring, it? 19 years of retirement. Okay, so that's 29 years. And let's say they started touring, I reckon, at the age of, like, 19. 20 at the latest. So 48, you're saying? So 48, early 50s? Yeah. I reckon so. Yeah, that's, that makes that's sense. That's how I see it. I've got my... Uh, I'm at this point now where sort of my, my... Myself and my partner's parents are just kind of crossing over into the early to mid-50s and that's the vibe I get. Okay, gotcha. Where they're just, they're just seeing their proper retirements just on the horizon. Their dad age. Just a couple oh, of dads. Yes. This this book is a, a, a sidetrack. This book is not as dad as I thought it would be. I thought this was going to be a book for dads. It's not a book for dads. It's a book about dads, people who are not yet dads. That's my opinion. That's a good point. For me, it was, it's just more of a... It's about Correction. looking back on past it is glory. probably for dads, but not dads of the same age. Yes, or it's for people I think, who have children kids. of the same yes. age. Yeah, which in the, traditionally is not the 50 mark. Although Rose is a lot older. Clay had his child quite late. Yeah, he did. I, I agree. We have his, Gabe's daughter is 19 and his is 12, 11. God, I thought she was younger than that. Isn't she like nine? I think she's, I think she's, um, mm. do the maths, she's eight. I suppose it's just the way it's written, isn't it? Because obviously a 19 year old, you can write basically as an adult, but 11 year old, it's still like, and they were playing magic dress up with sticks in the forest. Like, a lot happens in that very short number of years there. So. So, so back to Galon. Yeah. You just said how he's the reason they broke up. But I think it's actually kind of interesting, not interesting, actually, very important to note, that they were already falling apart. Like, it wasn't just he got arrested. He was the final straw. Okay. He was the final, he was the straw. 
as a, a lengthy section in this book is, the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> and Clay wondering, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then as he kind of recounts the story of how they fell apart, mm-hmm. he goes, oh yeah, that's what it means. Yeah. Everything was adding up and then that was the last bit. Thanks for explaining it, Duncan. I wouldn't have gone it otherwise. Um, the thing Shut that Ganelon brings to this book is not just the fact that he's a wild card. It's the fact that he's still a young man. He has a young man's body. And he is the only one who can still kind of fight. Because there's this huge question throughout the book. This book goes a long period of time with barely any fighting happening. They fight one assassin. They, like, punch one guy out. And then they get into this huge arena fight. And they can, they're kind of holding their own. But it all comes down to Ganelon. Ganelon is the heavy. He's the tough guy. Up till this point... He's a damage dealer. It's the best class to be. Up till this point, Clay has been the strong guy. When they got into a fight, Clay was the one who was like, who was dealing the most damage. Ganelon sweeps into this point. And so... Duncan, you and I are both fans of overly sarcastic productions. We like their videos. I'm sure yeah. you've seen a video of theirs called The Five-Man Band. Yes. Yeah. And at this point, we're surprised by the fact that Clay is not the tough guy in The Five-Man Band. The Five-Man Band is a, is a trope in fiction which sometimes uh, bands of adventurers fall into, where you have a leader, you have what's called a lancer, which is the person who butts head with the leader, you have the smart guy, you have the tough guy, and you have the heart. And what we realize is that Clay is the heart of the party. He's the emotional core. I think it's... Sorry, as you mentioned, kind of, it's a common trope. Uh, just want to put this on the table. Uh, this is the best example of this trope I've personally experienced in literature. I, I just want to say, like, yeah, th- yeah th- this isn't sort of an existing trope, but I, the, the spin off this trope that they are aging and it's getting the band back together mm-hmm. was just enough pure freshness that I could read the whole book and not give up. I'm really surprised we haven't made any <laughs> that Blues it was Brothers joke. jokes. Oh yeah, I told you to re-watch watch Blues Brothers for this episode. Did you do it? No. Alright, fuck. Well, whatever. <laughs> you skipped out on your homework then. <laughs> D minus. Anyway. I had enough going on. Yeah, you had to read your bloody Conan comics. Bad. <laughs> No point watching one Far of the, mo- the best comedy movies of all time. I gotta see Conan wrestle with Black Panther. Dude, when we spoke, we spoke about uh, midway through our kind of two weeks to read The Kings of the Wild, and you said that you were kind of waiting for things to get going. Yes. When did things get going? So the exact moment when I'm like, I'm kind of waiting for things to get going is exactly the scene I've just spoken about, the Colosseum. Because at that point in yes. the book, I was starting to get a teeny bit restless. It's a large part of this book is getting the band back together. And finally, after getting Ganelon back and seeing that Ganelon has the goods that he can go in this fight, literally, you turn the page and the thing which makes this book suddenly get going is Gabe. So it's a good moment for us to talk about it. Gabe in his past was Golden Gabe. He was the best warrior in the world. He was the leader of the best band in the world. He had it all. And when we see him, he's a shadow of his former self. Losing his daughter has completely ravaged him. Even though he has this impossible dream of getting her back, it's completely futile. There's no way to get her back. The horde surrounding um, the castle, it's described as being like um, in the millions, I think. 
But actually, when you describe it as surrounding a city, it's got to be like the hundreds of millions, right? Like surrounding a city, stretching to the horizons, that's that's pretty big. Um, maybe some yeah. poetic license there. I don't, uh, crowds are really big, man. I went to the Circus Maximus to watch Bruce Springsteen. I know what 10,000 people looks like. I do, ten, you need, like, 10,000 people isn't that big. So, to surround a city? I don't know, man. Pretty big crowds. It is a big crowd. you got to bear in mind, though, some of the, this crowd is made up of some pretty big fuckers. That's right. Some of those guys, some of those guys are pretty big. I hadn't considered that. I I consider this odd. It's quite interesting because on the one hand, in my head, I'm I'm imagining that um, scenes from like Lord of the Rings. You've got the, the armies of orcs over sure. Mordor, but then I have to remind myself that this isn't like necessarily going to be like thunderstorms and cloud cover for the whole scene. So can you ever like imagine the horde? But it's just a bright, beautiful day, <laughs> and they're all just because they can't all be attacking at once. Only the mm. ones at the front can be actively engaged with the fight. So the guys at the back, are they just there, like, frothing at the mouth? Or do they eventually just sit down and go, yeah, it'll be our turn eventually. We're on rotation. Mm-hmm. Should, we talk about, should we talk about Gabe? I can go back to Gabe, I suppose. He is sort of not the main character, but he's the one driving the plot, so good That's guy. Right. This is the scene where he gets his swagger back a little. That's right. There's a moment when Gabe has to make a decision. He's a shell of his former self. Everything that's important to him his wife, his money, his magical sword, his daughter, it's all been taken away from him. And seizing the sword, a, a classic moment in the hero's journey, is when Gabe gets his groove back. When he decides, I have to do this. And suddenly, everything in the book just flips a switch. They stop being this bumbling group of has-beens. And when Gabe makes this determination, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get it back, I need my sword that's when this book really, um, that's when it really turns up the dial and becomes about the adventure. And it's exactly the moment I was sucked in right to the end. So after that, we just have tons of fun adventures. You know, they get a skyship and they start flying around. It's fun to hang out with the characters and the adventures they meet along the way. There's, we meet their, like, principal antagonist for most of the book is not just, um the ancient scion of this of this former god emperor, um, Last Leaf, who wants to take back Velikor, Gabe's magic sword, and now they have a new antagonist, Larkspur, this, like, Valkyrie woman who's chasing them down, and who is, like, a dark mirror of Clay's innermost self, um, just starts really earnestly becoming a fun fantasy adventure, you know? What I find really interesting is when I started on this reread, everything up to that arena fight, which is about the halfway point, eh, just under maybe, sure. I remember so clearly, like scene for scene, beat for beat, even the jokes, I'm like, yes, I get this, I remember this. Mm-hmm. As soon as we go over that point, I actually was reading really again going, oh my god, they get in a lot of different adventures. Yeah, like the whole scene of them stealing the stealing the airship. I generally thought mm. that they kind of, did they pick the. I generally in my head I was like, did they pick the airship up after the arena? I'm like, no, they go here and they they go to back where the the their, their old Booker was and mm. kidnap him and steal his airship and and I completely forgot the zombie. I mean, uh, uh, Revenant. Revenant. <laughs> How rude. The Revenant, I was Poor like, kid. I forgot this character. I genuinely forgot that character existed. And then mm-hmm. there was another character who I forgot existed. And I was like, 
How how did I forget you? You are the emotional. You are the worst emotional gut punch in this book. Oh boy, should we talk about Gregor and Dane? Gregor and Dane. I had to tell my partner. I was lying in bed reading this book, and she literally looked at me at one point and went, "Are you all right?" it's so unexpected but it's so wonderful and horrible i described it to her so i didn't tell her the 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 wider plot i just said i just described gregor and dane Uh, i didn't specify that they were anetting i just just described you know know, they've got like a conjoined twin and this is what they do and she's like oh my god like that's such how does he spin like the story around that and i'm like oh no that's just a side character we're meeting for like four chapters (laughs) i don't know why (laughs) Gregor and Dane are in Etin. They are a two-headed giant. And Etin are classic humorous enemies to fight in fantasy stories. Because, you know, you can have the two heads argue. That's so classic. The two heads are bickering whilst they're fighting the bad guy. And then their bickering leads to them losing. That's so classic. But in this, which one's which? Gregor or Dane? Gregor can see. So Gregor is has it has sight and dane does not dane is blind dane is blind and and bludgeoned and and wounded and which means that gregor does all the seeing for them and gregor describes a world <laughs> nicer than the one they're in for dane's sake they're yeah. literally in this at this point we meet them they're in this like carnivores camp and it's i just imagine it this sort of rainy palisade this the the, there's no grass it's all just turned up mud they're dragging in Mm -hmm. dead body parts to prepare for the food and gregor goes we're in this beautiful castle and oh look they're bringing in oxen we're guests we're not trapped and enslaved and oh Mm -hmm. look pheasants oh there'll be pheasant tonight dane wouldn't that be lovely Mm -hmm. yeah it's so and and it and when and, and, and then Gregor and Dane come along on their adventures. They join the band for a bit and are even like helpful at times. And and it all leads up to this point where you're following these characters as they as Gregor spins these beautiful stories. Um when they have this really dramatic showdown on this perilous ice bridge, Gregor and Dane, not members of a party, but the best people in existence, sacrifice themselves to save the party and they fall down a mountainside and after clay follows suit getting his hand chopped off thrown off a mountainside crashing down more about that later i have a lot to say about that scene and and what i say might surprise you he finds the broken body of gregor and dane at the bottom of the mountain the bottom of the gully gregor is dead he he died in the fall and Dane thinks he's still sleeping. He's singing his brother a lullaby. He knows he's injured, but he are. still just wants to care for his brother. And Clay, this whole time, has sort of like... He's found it very emotional to see Gregor and Dane. But in this moment, you know, it falls to him, his responsibility, to keep up the noble lie and tell Dane that, you know, everything is right. And he, t- and he describes... That, you know, he says, Etin share dreams. And right now, he says, I can see his dreams. It's a beautiful place. And you realize that they're going to heaven. That he's seeing his brother's vision of the afterlife. And that's where he's going to join him soon. And then he's, his lullaby sings Clay to sleep. 
And when he wakes up, both Etten are gone. It's so emotionally strong. And he doesn't need to be. This is like a side yeah, character. He's such a, he's such a gimmick character. He could be just a complete one-off. And this book has too much heart to just invent Gregor and Dane and then abandon them. And it has too much miserable pathos to let them make it to the end of the story. Just, it's it, this is one of the things that I'm like, this is like a little snippet of this story, which will now hope, I say now stick with me. I actually kind of forgot it. I say I forgot it. I think I must have intentionally blocked it. Just like shut <laughs> off the pain of this side character. Remember mm-hmm. the good times. Um, but it also does have a really good narrative point. It's not just uh, a point of side character. It also, you know, it's one of those lessons of, look, monsters, or what they describe as monsters, as in non-humans, are, can, mm-hmm. can't have the capacity just to be just as loved, be noble and generous as anyone has the capacity mm-hmm. to be, given their environment. and They're just people. Yeah. And that's a really strong narrative point. So let's go fight that army of monsters. Oh, yes. Kill him indiscriminately. So I guess you yeah. now want to talk about Clay losing his hand. I have something I want to say. No, I don't want to talk about Clay losing his hand. No. Uh, what I want to talk about is the fall down the mountainside. So at this point, they've got their mojo back. They're completely decked out in armor. Um, falling down the mountainside. Clay falls like a thousand feet, bouncing down the mountainside. And at this point in the story, I'm like... So, where are we going to go from here? Because Clay is our main character, our perspective character. So how is the story going to move on now that he's dead? And then he wakes up at the bottom of the gully. And he's very injured, but because he has this magical suit of armor, he's fine. Now, the story has made a really big deal of the fact that Clay doesn't wear a helmet. And that he even hit his head on the way down. But he's fine. Didn't bother me. I know you're about to say that like, you had a big okay. issue with this, but honestly, just didn't even didn't even blip my radar. But I can totally get why it might have blipped on yours. To me, I was like, this was just transporting him, and it's meant to make him at his lowest moment, his most broken, where he has to have mm-hmm. he has to. This is for him to dig deep and gain the emotional resolve mm-hmm. to push on. It, I, what I love about the subsequent scene is that he races his way up a mountainside, was battered and bruised and injured and missing a hand to fight without a weapon to rescue Matty, who's been kidnapped. He says, I can't save Rose, but I won't abandon my friend. And the subsequent scene is brilliant because Clay showing up to intervene at this exact moment saves Matty, not because he's able to crack some heads, because he inspires Matty to stand up for himself. And it's the moment where Matty, who's been kind of the most bumbling member of the party at this point, Another thing I gotta say about this guy, uh, about the author, if a character is fat, he is not gonna let that slide. He's gonna talk about it a lot. Um, this is the moment when Maddie gets his groove back as well, and he fights like a damn demon. It's a well-written fight. It's really well-written. It's one of the best written fight scenes um, I can remember reading, certainly in the course of our podcast. I mean, that is very high praise. Yeah, we've had some good stuff from Green Rider and Red Nails and stuff, but it's is really well written. It is. It's, it, it does the sort of the classic points of showing. It keeps the action going. It keeps you involved in sort of the duck and the weave. Um, I think this. It keeps you involved though. It's not too standoffish and poetic. It doesn't just go. He fought very well. Not obviously, but it keeps you actually 
He fought like a tiger. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. He, actually, and I like it when it just has a little bit of the thought process. I like fight scenes where you're there mm. and you're getting the characters having to think and be a bit smart. And it's not just a description of how their physical prowess is so amazing mm-hmm. and their reactions are so quick. You see there's a bit of brains that goes into yeah. a fight and I appreciate that. The reason why Clay falling off a cliff and surviving is something I want to bring up is because I, I'm... This is really astounding. So whenever you write, you're always told if you threaten to kill a character and then you pull your punch, the audience will not believe that you're going to deliver later. So if you just have characters escape by the neck of their teeth and for not good reasons, they're not going to believe that the character's in any danger. And that happens a lot for this book. And yet, when we get to the final battle, after we have this really amazing dramatic speech by Gabe, which is really just worth reading for how pumped up it gets you. It's so cool and inspiring to summon this army of adventurers who want glory and who want the chance to really prove themselves in this inauthentic world of new adventurers. When the battle begins and they're plunging through the ranks, and they're fighting against Last Leaf, who's a pretty good antagonist, and they're trying to get back to Rose, I was so convinced. It didn't matter how many times he'd pulled punches before. I knew, I knew, as I'd known throughout this entire book, either Clay or Gabe aren't going to make it. One of them is going to die, and the the only question is, which one is it going to be? This book is all about how far two men will go to save their daughters, Gabe in actuality, Clay in abstract. So what? which of right. them is going to pay that price? I appreciate where you're coming from, what you're saying, but I need to just go back to one other point, which I mentioned earlier, and that's the loss of Clay's hand. Because you said about pulling punches. Mm-hmm. There was one punch pull that I didn't actually appreciate, and that was the fact that Clay gets his hand back really quick and easily. Mm-hmm. And I kind of it's, it's meant yeah, just to be a bit of a joke. I get the joke. It's a joke about regeneration. Which is fine. Regions. You can have this grievous injury which will then just be healed by one but spell. But I, you know? much, I do think I just would have appreciated a little bit more like, like there was a sacrifice to this journey. You know? Like maybe the augmentation is like Guts. He gets a yeah. metal hand and like he can still fight but he's lost exactly. something essential. Like, the thing he's lost that's essential is that he now has a grievous scar, which is a bit frightening. Um, that doesn't get healed. Um, that just seems a bit small. And so, maybe, yeah, I think he probably should have yeah, swapped yeah. hands. Now you have to wait. I thought that was so going to be the case. I saw, because they make such a point of the fact that like, he primarily uses the shield. I was like, are they just going to say like they have to like properly strap his shield to his forearm, and thus, so he has his other hand mm-hmm. on a weapon? Just something like that. I just thought this was going to be... His, yeah, like the sacrifice he had to make. And I thought that would be a really nice, small, you mm. know, because he survives falling off a cliff. Cool. Um, I can w- live with that. But I kind of just wanted a little bit of, a little bit more of a cost. And I think that's the only mm. time where I felt the joke of the regeneration slightly undercut the weight of sacrifice. You do, however, see that in my head, I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. Because Clay's going to fucking die, right? The whole, the, something he does really well is, despite how fun this book is, he never undersells how dangerous the final mission is. It's, like, absurdly impossible. It is the stuff of fantasy to think that they could somehow 
plunge into this battle and win the day, save the city of Castia and rescue Rose. It is suitably impossible. Well, uh, another great author once wrote that a million and one chances uh, happen all the time. I wonder what's the point in having them. This final battle is so exciting because you know everything hangs in. Despite all the stuff they've been through so far, all these horrible monsters they fight, you know, minotaurs and giants and demons, and Last Leaf himself, the main antagonist, you're like, who's going to go? Who's going to die? And the fact that... It really comes down to this amazing moment when they're trying to push through the mass and Rose is leading the charge out of Castia, the counterattack. Gabe and Rose are running towards each other through the battle. And you're like, oh god, this is it. Lastly's going to come out and he's going to intervene. Who's going to die? Who's, who's it going to be? And... And this is beautiful moment where Clay is like trying to push past the army and with his shield and he... And he hears Rose call out, Dad. And in his head, he hears two voices. One, Rose. The other, his daughter. And the thesis statement about this book is, you should help people as if they were your family. And because he conceptualizes Rose as his daughter, he pushes through and has this amazing moment of like finding that new strength to push forward, to fight the most... Hor- basically like an ice balrog. That was like his big final hurdle. And to have Gabe, who's been such a meat kitten at this point, to find this moment to go up and in one amazing move, like slice straight into his neck and win the day. It was astoundingly well written. It was to, uh, so good. And to see that... Sorry, just to yeah. sell it to everyone else. I got text messages when Geordie finished this book going the ending yeah. was so good and my reply was oh you finished editing mm-hmm. the last podcast it was like no that was good too but <laughs> the book the ending to the book so like, oh yeah the final fight is amazing it's, it's the it's epic so adventure uh, it's the final fight that i think i've you always dream of in like a D campaign the sense of like you set this I did not expect this book to just end. Like, I didn't think it would be wrapped up, first, so quickly, and secondly, so amazingly neatly. I was sure, I told Duncan, we're going to have to read the next book for this podcast, because I thought this book was going to end with them getting to Castia, and the next book, and then Gabe would die, and then Rose would take his place in the party, and then the next book would be about defeating Lastleaf. But that was completely wrong! I loved your, that prediction there, how that worked out. I think this book really does... This book works perfectly as a standalone. I think that's something really worth saying, that while this is part of what's going to be an ongoing series, The Kings of the Wild is a complete story with a, a message, a narrative, character arcs. You'd need no more. And while there's some whiffers of thread just pointing out that can be brought and are taken forward, they don't bother me. The tapestry's been done. The conclusion's really well written. It's a summary. It's just like the a... fact that the epilogue is is written by their bard, by Kit the Unkillable, um, and he like goes on to say to summarize the rest of the lives and their accomplishments. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of weight to that. It, it it hits hard, especially the stuff about Moog. The stuff about Ganelon is like really tragic. You know, like I was really surprised. 
by how sudden and dark that turns. I think that's... something we missed out in this book is that Ganelon, like being petrified, doesn't stop time for you. It's Doctor Stone rules. You're still cognizant, and because Ganelon knows his days of adventuring are done, but he also knows that there's going to be another book <laughs> because, for reasons like, to, to the Winter Queen is coming. And he says, like, wake me up when she gets here. Never explicitly saying who she is. I'm assuming he means the Winter Queen. And he locks himself back in stone again. Geordie, I brought this book to you because I love it. And I thought you, I was so confident you would love it. Because it has, I thought, mm. the, the balance of pathos and comedy. And I'm not going to lie, we're D&D players. I felt that particularly that angle yeah. you could really connect to. And, uh... It is such a D&D book. Like, I can't express enough. Like, he's literally taken um, monsters in the monster manual and done them as described. There's a character who's a Rakshasa, who is mentioned, and he describes the Rakshasa as they appear in the monster manual, which has absolutely no bearing on its, uh, on its description in Hinduism. And for, like, a, a long-time player of D&D, it was so nice, the idea, because I could really see, like, yeah, this would be the adventure that our party would go on. If we ever did like a 10 or 20 years later game. Who do you recommend this book to, Duncan? That's a very good question. Because it's more probably, it's not quite everyone. As some of our previous books has been. Because this book does, I think, rely a little bit on certain cultural understandings. I think to get the most out of it. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone who is a fan of like role-playing games and Dungeons and Dragons especially. Then this is 100% must-sell. Must-read. You have to experience this book. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, if you're a fantasy fan in general and you sort of wear the trope to the genre, must read, 100%, definitely read this book. Mm. If you're completely new, if you've not really picked up fantasy, firstly, thank you for listening to our podcast. You're trying to get into fantasy for the first time. Very brave of you. Um, I would say that you might want to start out reading some of the other more classics of the genre. Right, because this is a book that's in conversation with the fantasy genre, you know. It's, um, exactly. I wouldn't go as far to say it's a meta-commentary, although I guess there's an aspect of that, but it plays with ideas which are done earnestly uh, in other books. Like, you know, this but unironically, as it were. Exactly. So what I would say to those people is, this book is a must-read after you've read maybe like five <laughs> other must-read books. It is a damn good book, though. Yep, um... Who do I recommend this book to? I think you've summarized it very well. Fans of fantasy who are excited to see the genre played with a little bit. Fans of role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. And fans of uh, Rat Queens. You ever read Rat Queens, Duncan? I have no idea what you're on about. Alright, Rat Queens is a comic book. Uh, It has a similar vibe around it being a slightly goofy depiction of life as a D&D adventurer. Um, It's very good, but... Uh, it ended extremely abruptly at the most exciting part of the story, vanished for several years, and then rebooted. And I went, well, fuck that. How I felt very disrespected, and I, um, I didn't continue taking any interest in the series. Fair enough. Well, to the fans of that obscure comic series that didn't have a good ending, now you have something else to enjoy. I hope you're happier. But it's not just what, about what me and Geordie thinks. To so all the people out there who have read kings of the wild please do and it's sequel please do write in and tell us your thoughts and opinions the interesting ones we will discuss here at our book club you can reach out to us at is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com or on instagram at is this just fantasy podcast 
Instagram account. You don't have to say Instagram, man. I'm not. I'm really not. I'm not the best down with the kids on the new technology. I'm. I'm still kind of working it out. You'll yeah. see that by the post. You'll be like, does this guy know that? <laughs> He doesn't have to edit it in, like, three other different bits of software first. I'm like, I don't know how you edit things on Instagram. I, I, literally... I just make my pictures up. <laughs> the best thing is, like, I'm trying to bring down the amount of social media I have. So I haven't made a new Instagram. So I do not know what Duncan is doing with Instagram. I've never seen it. Uh, give it some time. Let me actually post more than, like, seven posts. Oh, right. I'm talking about the Instagram. Um, I haven't brought it up now, but I posted it. Earlier on uh, to Instagram, my favourite quote from Kings of the Wild, and I should mention on the podcast, Nicholas Ames, Pyromates. What a great pun. Perfect. And on that exciting note, I will now take you to our interview with the author, Nicholas Eames. Nick was really generous in offering us our first chance to interview some for the podcast, and I think it's a really fantastic time. I'm really happy with the way our interview turned out. However... I must give you fair warning, we learned some really important lessons about how we're going to record interviews like this in the future, we made some mistakes, and it doesn't sound as good as it could. Nonetheless, I'm still really proud of how it turned out, and I hope you will enjoy our first interview with an author, Nicholas Eames. Take us away, me? Hello everyone, and welcome back to Is This Just Fantasy with Geordie Bailey. And Duncan Nicholl about to do his first ever interview and feeling rather nervous about it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is a first experience for this podcast. Uh, our new pal, Nick, has, uh, has offered very generously to join us as our first guest on the podcast. Would you care to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name's Nick Eames, uh, Nicholas, better known as Nicholas Eames, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. to those not my family and friends. Uh, I'm a fantasy author. Uh, so far, I've got two books out in the world. They're part of a series called The Band, uh, and they are called Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose. And of course, we're talking to you today, Nick, because we, as part of our podcast, have just been reading and reviewing uh, Kings of the Wild, and we would like to chat to you all about how it came to be, your background with fantasy, and... Um, and some of your uh, reading recommendations for the year, maybe. Awesome. Well, I, I, ho- I hope you liked it, but uh, I'm willing we, to discuss if you hated did. it. <laughs> yeah. Duncan, this was your pick for the podcast, right? Um, how did you first come across uh, Kings of the Wild? How did I first come across it? Well, I'm not going to lie. Um, excellent pick on a cover artist. <laughs> I basically found this book purely because I was browsing Waterstones here in the UK, and it was of all the kind of main monotone blacks, or white covers. I love the vibe at the moment. We've got a lot of white covers, the pencil sketches. Yeah. The sword ones, again, I get it. I love the vibes, especially from David Gimmel's, all his covers, bloody acts great. But when you, I sort of saw that kind of more like, I'm going to say watercolored, non ask critique. That might be not the vibe it's going for. But that kind of slightly more washed out vibe with just the characters, I went, yes, this is different. Yeah, that cover of Richard uh, no. Anderson is he's amazing. I used to buy all of his covers without knowing that it was him doing all the covers. Um, I would just come home with a bunch of books and be like, oh, these look similar. Um, this is not the first book uh, on this podcast, which Duncan has chosen specifically because of the cover artist. Oh, I constantly judge books by their covers all the time. Yeah, Never I, if only me. there was some advice around that that could sort of warn us about whether that's a good idea or not. Whoever said that has a shitty cover, I guess. <laughs> I completely agree. We did uh, the Gutter's Prayer. Yeah. Early in the year, again, same cover artist, and Andrew's like, Duncan, why'd you pick this? I'm like, yeah, I was in a charity shop, and uh, 
oh that's just so beautiful just to have it on my shelf i was like i don't care it could be a bad book yeah but just to sit on my shelf and have that cover i'm like yes yeah he's pretty good he's pretty good so we've already discovered something very important about you nick which is that you you're mostly buying books based on the cover but can you tell us a little bit about your background as a reader you know all all writers start as readers and so what did you sort of read growing up um well when i was very young like many uh guys my age i read lord of the rings Uh, i read it pretty young so i kind of skipped a lot of the traveling across the countryside stuff i definitely skipped the songs the first time around Mm -hmm. um but i was you have to excuse me very young at the time um and Mm then i remember a few other stuff like narnia Narnia books that i really really loved um when i was in high school i was reading like the Dragonlance chronicles and very kind of Mm -hmm. oriented stuff that's kind of when i a friend a miscreant friend of mine introduced me to dungeons and dragons um and then I was still reading that stuff when I had to do a project for school in which I had to read a Canadian mm-hmm. author. So I, I was panicking. I had one day left and I went to the book, the library and found a Canadian flag on the spine of a book. It was uh, a book by Guy Gabriel Kay. And it was part three of a series, which is obviously a terrible place to start, but I had no time left. So I picked it up uh, and it was a book called, I think it's The Darkest Road. Um, book three of the Fionnivar Tapestry. And I started reading it, and it was about people from Toronto taken to a fantasy world. And I was like, this is horrible. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. And then it had, like, King Arthur in it, and I'm like, been there, done that, no thank you. But I, you know, I had to keep reading because I had this project due. And then cut to a day later, and I was weeping like a baby. And I had never, ever <laughs> cried in a book or felt true, like, emotion at a book before. Um, mm. And... So yeah, the reading Guy Gabriel K absolutely changed my life and uh, it made me like a way more critical reader and, you know, ultimately a better writer, even though I tried for years to emulate him. So <clears throat> with and failed. So um, yeah, to this day, uh, he's my favorite author and, uh, and yeah, he kind of got me into, into interested in writing as opposed to just reading. Well, that is something we'll definitely have to look into for the podcast then, aren't we, Duncan? I was the list. It's a very long list. Yeah, a list. The long, long list. Would when you, you say, say that was um? Oh, please go ahead, Duncan. So I just want to catch on that you say, yeah, people kind of your age. What were sort of the kind of the big fantasy books coming out when you were growing up? What was being kind of marketed as this is the hot stuff? Uh, well, when I was like a teenager, it was in the '90s, so that was like the original George R. R. Martin back when he was writing a book every couple of years. Um, Robert Jordan was big at the time. Um, Robin Hobb was around, although she wasn't very popular in, as, or as, sorry, as popular in uh, mm. North America, I would say, as she is in England. I never realized how popular she was until I went to England for the first time, and I was like, oh, she's <laughs> worshipped as a god here. I had no idea. Um, yeah, that's so interesting to hear, though, because I never think, like, how even between England and the US, there can ever really be that much difference in media. Because to me, Robin Hobb, you, you just talk about it, she's She's almost like with Tolkien, you know, as kind of like a staple of the genre. She was until I went to the UK and was, was it like, kind of... oh my God, they love her over here. <laughs> um, so yeah, growing up, I mean, in the 90s at least, it was peak Robert Jordan time. I was reading his books like, you know, the day they came out, I'd buy a new Robert Jordan book. and then, um, But yeah, that kind of stuff when I was a teenager. Bad. And know, Jordy, you've not really had the pleasure of Robert Jordan, have you? No, I, I, um, I'm, I'm lacking in many uh, aspects of my fantasy love, and that's what Duncan is here to fix. I'm here to introduce him to the world of trashy YA fantasy, and he is here to, to, cult- to talk to culture me. 
I, I wouldn't call it culturing. I'm I'm very much when I I'm thinking of introducing to Robert Jordan, and I have the idea that the first book he reads by him has to be one of his Conan books. You know, like Conan the Invincible. Like, yep, sure, this will be your introduction to one of our greatest authors. Well, I've never read those, but um, yeah, Robert Jordan's great. Like, but he's not. I wouldn't say he's any better than or any better at all than modern fantasy books. I mean, ultimately, I think newer is usually better. Although I obviously have a great love for Lord of the Rings. You know, when it comes to characterization, there's no comparison between those books and modern books. You know, you're not going to like feel what Aragorn feels. He's a phenomenal character, but you're not going to feel what he feels. Sure, he's a whole different type of character, an emulation of epic styles. Yeah, exactly. Duncan, would you like to field the next question? No. Well, because I think this is hard one I want to ask, because obviously you said, like, you know, while you're reading fantasy, and I guess that kind of fulfills the next question, but what I'm always interested in, on the very rare occasions I've gotten to interact with an author, is why have you picked this specific genre? And I know we're talking about, like, fantasy, but why this subgenre? Why... Because if you take a story, you go, like, yeah, but, you know, could you transpose it to a setting? What do you think? Why did you pick fantasy? And why do you feel, if you do feel, I should make assumptions, that, like, fantasy was the right fit for the story you wanted to tell? Uh, well, fantasy is just something I've always loved. I used to read a lot more varied stuff. Um, and then I just, I, I worked at a bookstore, so I read kind of everything. But then I just kind of, like, gravitated towards fantasy only because, especially as you moved out of the, into the George R. R. Martin era of fantasy where, where characters got a bit more realistic and stories got a bit more grim and the heroes weren't just like these, you know, Mary Sue type characters that were just perfect and flawless and stoic. Um, you started to see like real human stories being told. Um, and so once you've got, when you've got like a genre that can tell all the same real human stories about family, about trauma, about oppression, mm. about, you know, colonialization, anything you want under the sun, you can set that, but in any setting you want, and then also have magic and wizards and dragons. There's just no, there's just no, like, why would you read a book about a family in Nova Scotia struggling mm-hmm. when you can read a book mm-hmm. about a family doing the exact same thing, but, you know, then centaurs attack. <laughs> I think fantasy just got a bit, a bit broader scope that way. And, uh, yeah. And kind of leading off then, if you can take any type of story and put it into fantasy, uh, why rock bands? Or bands in general? That idea is just one I feel really fortunate to have come up with. Uh, I feel like it's the kind of idea where someone would have come up with, like, stoned out of their mind and been like, whoa, imagine mercenary bands, but rock mm-hmm. bands. Like, and and then gone, okay, never mind, it's too goofy to write. Um, but I, when I came up with it, I was reading, I had just read uh, Ready Player One, which is, you know, obviously a book about the things that that author loves. Mm-hmm. It doesn't obviously appeal to everyone, but you know, there's a, that's a very like honestly like a love, an homage to all the things that author loves. So I was kind of in that mindset, and that book introduced me to the band Rush. Not introduced me; I knew who they were, but more so, um, especially because they're Canadian and so am I, and I should know better. Um, they're like the Robin Hobb of, of uh, rock bands here in Canada. Um, and so I started listening to Rush and I was like, oh, this is really fucking good. And they're very, their music is so entwined in fantasy, like so much. Mm. Um, and so, and just listening to that, and I think it was well listening to that, I came up with the idea of mercenary bands as rock bands. And having just read a book that was about, you know, an homage to the things that someone really loved, um, I had been writing another book for about 12 years that will never see the light of day. That was like a very serious, epic fantasy, trying to be like, 
you know, Robert Jordan, like Guy Gabriel Kay, like Steven Erickson. Uh, and it just wasn't written in my voice, even though I was trying so damn hard to make it uh, work. Mm. And so that book and that music kind of inspired me to write Kings of the Wild and just try, you know, writing in my own voice and writing a story that was like unabashedly fantasy, which at the time wasn't very popular. And um, so my next question was going to be about the influence of music on this book, which is feels so um, naked and obvious right from the get go. Could you talk a little bit more about the sort of music you have in mind? Like, for example, like the band of Saga. Do you sort of imagine that as embodying a particular type of music? Um, well, not Saga itself. In the first book, Kings of the Wild, it's kind of very like inspired by the 70s, um, uh-huh. 70s era of rock. So book bands like Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and the, even the uh-huh. Rolling Stones, even though they're more 60s too, but... Um, so that kind of band and that kind of like things were they you know bands at the time like rock bands at the time in the 70s kind of traveled around they were very ah. rudimentary compared to what they later became these big you know epic shows on wheels um, and so that was kind of the feeling I was trying to capture and the music that inspired that was like I would listen to and it wasn't music that I necessarily really loved before writing this book but for about two years it's all I listened to was you know Pink <laughs> Floyd and all that kind of music, and I, I absolutely loved it. And it's great music to write to as well because it's you know these songs are sometimes seventeen minutes long. There, there's sometimes there's many often like oftentimes there's songs with no words at all, um, and it's just very very inspiring music. So Saga itself, the band members in the book kind of represent members of a band. So uh, Clay Cooper, who's the main character, he's kind of the quiet, stoic. Um, guy that everyone kind of forgets when they tell stories about the band and he represents the bassist I, I told you Duncan I told you he was the bassist <laughs> yeah some people some people mix it up but I mean it's just like when you name a band you, people always forget the bassist name always you know uh, and so and Clay Cooper kind of embodies that character and he's the person who like without the bassist like it's never he's never the showiest person of the band but without him he's that steady thrum the heartbeat that keeps the, the song going so that's Clay Cooper and then Gabriel is kind of the leader of the band he's the obviously the vocalist um, there's a character named Matrick whose nickname is Skull Drummer who literally fights with two knives he represents the drummer um, and then Ganelon who is quite literally the axe man um, uh-huh. and like the best warrior of them all and then Moog is the wizard and he sort of represents like that zany keyboardist triangle player uh-huh. pyrotechnic guy <laughs> uh, the jack of all trades so and then uh-huh. with the, my second book uh, Bloody Rose uh, it moves into like 80s style of music um, and so where bands were kind of trying to emulate what came before and be bigger and better um, and a bit more self-destructive and less yeah. kind of like uh-huh. folksy and jovial and uh-huh. so in that in that book, each member of the band rep, of the band called Fable represent a genre of eighties music. Just because music got a lot more diversified in the eighties as well. Um, so you've got like Rose is kind of the punk rock, and Brune is kind of uh-huh. the metal, um, and you know there's Free Clouds the pop, and yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's a bit more a bit more different in the, in the second book. So one thing that I've enjoyed when I was reading them. So I don't have any music understanding whatsoever yeah. i am very much i get in my car i turn on the radio i go yep and then, <laughs> and then i finish my journey i turn off the radio and that's it i don't connect to it reading this and then not knowing that and still being able to get okay i get kind of where he's coming from but 
is there anything like if you had someone who was about to go in blind who you knew no musical understanding mm. can't clap a beat hasn't got any history is there anything that you're like right could, can i just sit you down like my book's great regardless but you might appreciate some things if i just stuck you in front of this you know 30 minute youtube video so anything that you're like, yeah, this is the crash course. Like, could you just understand these things that I'm trying to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think watching and during the course of writing this book, I watched a lot of live like Led Zeppelin concerts and those things are <clears throat> incredible. Like, and they're just trippy. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, Jimmy Page, the guitarist would would put like a a violin and like pl- play it with, with like a guitar. So just ridiculous <clears throat> stuff. Um, and so they're pretty cool to watch, but there's actually a soundtrack, an unofficial soundtrack to both books. Um, they're available they're on Spotify that I've made, and then on my website, which is just my name, nicholsteams.com, um, there is a chapter by chapter kind of like soundtrack reference for Kings of the Wild. Um, okay. Bloody Rose was a bit, written a bit differently because I couldn't write it to music because the music's a bit more like in your face uh, you know, with uh-huh. a lot of vocals. But, uh, and it kind of semi-explains, like you could take a kind of a journey through the book by listening to that music and especially things like um, Freebird, the song Freebird, which is obviously pretty famous by, um, my God, I'm just blanking on the name right now, Leonard Skinner. Um, like that song, I, since the first few pages of Kings of the Wild, I was like, I can't wait to write the climax of this book to the guitar solo from Freebird. It's the greatest <laughs> you know, climax music of all time. Um, and yeah. And, and listening to that, that music, it's uh, you know, I think it would be a great accompaniment to not even necessarily reading it while listening to it, but just knowing what happens in the story and then listening to that song and thinking this is what inspired. Sure. It. Absolutely. That makes, um, that makes so much sense. You know, like, you know, I, you know, I've said to Duncan, the climax of Kings of the world is so pulse poundingly intense and, direct and engaging and i'm full up of this like feeling of oh my god a thing's gonna go wrong and now saying that it's like a guitar solo that sort of makes all the pieces fall into place you can sort of imagine gabriel sliding towards the audience and his knees strumming his, his guitar yeah that and that that scene is very based off of like when he slides kind of underneath rose at one point um you know based on that pete townsend's he's got a very famous slide from the who video um, and so many parts of that, like there's actually a Who song that the final like, scenes were written to. Uh, certain scenes in the book, like there's a scene where they get, kind of get chased by a, a dragon. Uh, and that scene, I remember I was writing it and it just wasn't working. The dragon was like talking at one point and I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do with this scene. And then I was walking to work and I was listening to my, you know, classic rock soundtrack and on came uh, the ZZ Top song, LaGrange. And by the end of it, I was like, I've got the scene. The whole scene is here in my head. I went home and written it, wrote it. And you could read that scene to that song and it would time exactly to every kind of beat of it. Um, and the same kind of goes for when I was writing Bloody Rose, I was right near the end of it. Um, and I won't kind of spoil anything for you if you haven't read it. But I had mentioned, I was listening to a lot of Meatloaf at the time and someone on Twitter mentioned this Meatloaf song for crying out loud that I like, yeah. I loved Meatloaf, but I just hadn't really connected to that song very much so i listened to it and i was like god damn it that's really good and i listened to that song on repeat i could get it in about seven times on the way to work and seven times on the way home and i would just listen to it over and over and over again and the climax of bloody rose like the very 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 climax climax last page of it not the last page but the climactic page is written like exactly to a very specific part of that um 
that song right down to every silence every drum beat every you know crooning like you know vocal crescendo it's i yeah. feel very seen right now nick uh i i recently the last couple of weeks wrote this big climactic scene and in my head i was playing to um the tune of alive by meatloaf so i feel like yeah. oh, this makes a lot of sense to me uh meatloaf uh, knows how to do a climax mm-hmm. i feel so bad i really i feel like you're talking about all this wonderful music and i'm sat here it's like yeah this is like when i was in year nine and i had to read animal farm but before they taught me about communism. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, this is an enjoyable book, but I clearly can tell I'm missing something. Well, the whole point, I mean, when I wrote it too, it wasn't, uh, it's written so that you don't have to have obviously any musical knowledge to, to enjoy it. Um, you know, my editor, when she picked it up, she had no idea anything about anything about anything. And like, originally there was an, there was an agent interested in it and he knew everything. He was an older British guy and he knew he got all the references and he's like, this is way too much. You got to change all of this. He, he <laughs> made me take, uh, cause he didn't end up representing me, but I try, I was trying to bend over backwards so that he would. And he was like this character, like Clay Cooper's nickname is slow hand. He's like, you've got to take that out. It's everyone knows that's Eric Clapton's nickname. And I said, uh, they don't, I promise you that. I didn't know, and no one under the age of 40 in America knows that. I promise. And he's like, that's impossible. Everyone knows it. And sure enough, no one does. Um, and yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, if you get the refer- if you get too many references, it may take you out of the story and you may hate it. And if you get none of them, great. I will rescue Duncan now, and I will, I will maneuver us away from the theme of music. Oh, thank you, Jordy. It is appreciated. So, a really persistent theme, both in Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose, is a theme of parent-child relationships. And why is this such a sort of crucial theme to um, this particular book? Um, yeah, beats me. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people, when they read the first book, and I was just even talking to my original editor uh, yesterday, and she was like, "I remember thinking that you must have been a dad when you wrote Kings of the Wild," and I wasn't. I actually didn't even have nieces and nephews yet, which I now have. Um, but it's one of those things where, especially, and maybe it's because of the the music aspect of it. I'm sorry, Duncan, to go back there, but you know <laughs> what comes before affects what comes after, uh, and that's true for life you know, science, literally everything in the world. And, and, and so much so in music, like what comes, what comes, you know, has, is, a, you know, or what happens is always affected by what has come before. So it's the same with people, you know, we're, we're so much affected by our upbringing, how we were raised. And even when we move out of that area, who we meet and the friends that we hang out with at that, at that point. So um, yeah, the books just kind of end up being about, obviously the first book, the hook was a father trying to rescue his daughter um, and then because, you know, a bunch of the main characters are, are all older guys, um, uh-huh. it is a, a very much a book about, about fatherhood. And the second one, you know, obviously it has motherhood themes in it, but part of the main themes about that book is that motherhood's not like Rose is a mother and that's a, a bit of a, a bit of a spoiler, but not really. Um, but she doesn't really, didn't really want to be and uh-huh. is a mother because, you know her partner wanted to have a child basically and Uh she's not doesn't want to give up her her life um to be one and she's not ready to be one and and the kind of the 
not that I like necessarily go overboard in, in, in looking into that, but the point is it just that's okay because so many times you read, you know, no one blinks an eye at Clay Cooper leaving his daughter to go on this crazy adventure. Sure. So why should you uh, when it's when it's the mother? So mm. um, yeah, just with just with changing of different characters and perspectives in the book, it just the second book ends up being a lot more about motherhood, and and the third book, which I'm working on now, uh, has a bit of both um, because it it like it's so much. Uh, um, a product of the book that came before that and the book that came before that. Um, and ultimately, although the characters um, are kind of new every book, but there's obviously a few cameos, um, you'll see those characters change throughout the course of, you know, the, the 20 or 30 year history that these books cover, but also the world itself change. And, you know, hopefully the world itself will be as much of a, like a character kind of as the characters they are. Mm. Um, speaking of the, the connections between these books, were there any sort of lessons learnt from writing the first book that you sort of carried on and took with you when you started writing Bloody Rose? Um, well, not necessarily. I think I've probably gotten worse at writing because I get it, I'm more nitpicky now than I used to be. Um, when, like, I think I learned a lot of lessons writing that book that I wrote for about 12 years that will never see the light of day. You know, a lot of lessons and uh, stumbled into every pitfall possible for a new author. Um, and so when I wrote Kings of the Wild, it was just sort of in like a, don't worry about world building. Don't draw your map. Don't plan this culture. Don't do anything. Just, you've got these characters. They're great characters, you know, finish the tell their story kind of thing. And so when I wrote that book, it was just like, just kind of spewed it all out there. And, uh, and with the second book, it was... Yeah, a little bit, a little bit more difficult because the characters aren't because they represent these '80s '80s bands. They're not uh, not as kind of happy-go-lucky as the people in the first book, and they're also a lot younger, a lot more angstier. They're they're trying to capture glory. They're not trying to, you know, get get rid of it or escape it. Um, but when it comes to writing, yeah, it was just I kind of knew I was kind of better at it now, and I, I still got I get I get a bit nitpicky, and I kind of go over my own stuff a lot, but. Um, it did at least mean, but that by the time I handed it in, um, which the second book was only a little bit over deadline, um, there wasn't there wasn't too many structure edits to be done on it. So, mm. oh my god, everything, everything, word choice. I mean, when I'm I'm a pretty picky reader too. Like, I was once five books into a series when the author used the word vast. I think five times over the course of three pages in describing this dragon. And I was done. I've never read another one of his books ever. Um, and granted, I'd been, uh, I've, I've got to ask, sorry, sorry. Could you, can you name, can you name Shane? Shane? I absolutely cannot. No. Um, <laughs> sorry. But, uh, but I, yeah, I'm super nitpicky. And I, I'd been leaning that way for a while. Cause that uh, the author used to, he, he wrote books slower and then he started writing books a lot faster and the books were just not as well written and it got to the point where I, I really do care about like the words and the structure of sentences. Not that I like you will absolutely put a book down if it's not phenomenal prose wise, but I do really, really I won't, probably won't read them that author again. So, um, yeah, when the use of words like too close to one another is a big one for me. Um, I'm I'm really like a, a not about um, even like the syllables in a sentence and the sound of the sentence. Uh, and it's not something that probably a reader picks up on. They probably don't care at all. But just for me, it's something that uh, that matters a lot. And, and uh, you know, obviously, 
my writing's not perfect and it's not perfect to a lot of people, but, uh, but it is perfect to me. So that kind of works out like in the end. So I can be pretty nitpicky about, about stuff like that. And even stuff like the words, like my favorite word in the whole world is the word inexorable, for instance. Uh, I first read it in a Guy Gabriel K book, actually that book that I picked up in high school. And uh, I remember I used it in Kings of the Wild. And then when I wanted to use it again, like it's such a unique word. And so when I wanted to use it again, I was like, I can maximum use this word twice in the same book, but it has to be hundreds and hundreds of pages apart. If I was reading a book and it was inexorable one page and inexorable the next, I would be done. I would be absolutely done it. There's no way I would read another page. And, I, and it's weird wow, to say, but, but I would. And so, I yeah, every, every time I tried it, wanted to use the word inexorable, I had to measure it against the first one and be, is it worth it? Which one's better? And then lose it. So just going back there, you mentioned, you know, you started out, you had some great characters. Now, when I recommended this book to Geordie, I saw it at the back of my head. I was like, knowing him, I think I know who would be his favorite character. And uh, lo and behold, it was the same as mine. And that is Moog. We are both massive fans of Moog. Everything he does, everything he stands for, his interactions. So, for him, what was like the seed? What was like the starting inception of Moog? And I just want to know a little bit like, you know, did he develop? Did he come out of your mind like more fully formed? Did you wake up in a cold sweat as a bolt of lightning struck outside? Well, Moog is I mean all those characters in Kings of the Wild. I feel pretty just once again. It's like fortunate to have thought of in the first place, and I don't know how exactly I did. Um, he just came fully formed. Like when I was writing that book, it was like, okay, now it's time for them to go to the wizard's house, and and he was just kind of the that stereotypical wizard, you know, and more so pushed to the brink because he's literally wearing like you know pajamas, one piece pajamas with moons and stuff on them. Um, yeah, he was just kind of a goofy, funny character and he became through the course of writing the book and through the editing process as well. Um, obviously he's a, he's a very poignant character too. And he didn't kind of become that until, uh, until the editing process. Cause originally in the first draft of the book, he didn't have the rot, which he has, um, he has in the regular book. Um, so he didn't have that. So he wasn't as poignant, but he just kind of the character who like the, any weird, wacky, funny thing I could think of, I could throw in there, and Moo could usually get away with it. Um, and I kind of ended up, you know, recycling that in the second book. I have a character named Roderick, who's he obviously he's not as goofy as Moog, but he's the same kind of character that's like, okay, if there's just a really crazy thing, I can have Roderick say it. And the same goes for book three. There's a character called Short Knife, who uh, is the same, the same kind of type of character. Um, Intriguing. Yeah, and there's, there's, there was like a couple Moog parts that my editors got me to tone down or take out. But there was also a few that they asked me to take out that I, that I stuck to my guns and didn't like the scene where they're all walking like five abreast up the hill. Um, and, and Moog trips and falls over his robe. And then over every one of them falls, they were like, Hey, can we take that out? It's a little too goofy. And I was like, Nope. Uh, and I'm glad I didn't. And Moog is, you know, most people's favorite character, I think, in the end. I think in terms of, like, really, the cat you've used the word poignant, and, of course, we don't want to use the word too many times in this interview, otherwise you'll quit the interview. Um, but if we're going to talk about poignant characters, I feel like, I think a really strong part of this book is the fact that Clay is our perspective character. Because there's a world in which your instinct would be to go straight to Gabriel. You know, he's this big personality. He's the natural leader of the group. He's the front man. Um... 
and the choice to go with clay was that something that like you say just was natural to you from the start or was that a decision that had to be made at a certain point in telling the story no i was saying it was natural from the start because clay uh when i wrote the book i actually wrote the first three chapters of it and those first three chapters like they never got edited they never got changed when so many other things did, they were just virtually untouched through the entire process. But I wrote the first three and then put the book away for a whole year while I went back and worked on my magnum opus. Uh, <laughs> and and that was always kind of back in the mind. I was like, oh, I should go back and work that because I really like Even writing those first three chapters, I, I really liked Clay. Um, but it just seemed natural a natural fit to have that person that was settled into their life. Um, and who, you know, of a band, who, which member would that be? Um, you know, usually the most regulated of all of them are the bassist. Um, and to have his, his kind of, uh, tranquility be disturbed by the, the more charismatic frontman that came and, and needed help. So it's just, it's so touching because when you're kind of reading through the book, we've had this conversation back and forth about like favorite characters and who's like the more interesting, who's got the biggest adventure. But the fact that when you, you know, you're seeing to kind of start with Clay, as the the heart for the team, I don't know. I think what I was trying to say, what I'm trying to say is, could you please write a spin off focusing on Moog though? But I do know how to get round to that, so I've just cut across. Yeah, well, I did uh, when I first finished writing Kings of the Wild because I originally originally wrote it just as a standalone um, with no kind of sequels in mind. And um, when I was first done, just as kind of an exercise in exploring the characters more, as I was sending it out to people, um, I started writing a book that i was tentatively calling like bards of the band and it was uh you know for those if anyone hasn't read the book they always have these bards around that bards accompany these bands and tell their stories and sing their songs and pump them up and make them famous um and saga the main band just can't keep a bard alive for the life of them uh which is kind of a joke based off of the movie spinal tap where they have a drummer where they can't they can't die in mysterious ways and so this was a collection of like short stories called Bards of the Band written in chronological order from the point of view of the bards. And at the end of every story, the bard died. Um, <laughs> but so I'd written the first one where like they meet, you know, Clay has been dragged to a bard with, with, by uh, Gabriel to meet this booker, Calarek, and, 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 and Matrick is there. And then they meet Gamelon, who's in a bar fight, and they come to his rescue, and, you know, the band uh-huh. is kind of formed. And then in the second chapter, they were on their way. Their first gig, basically, was uh, was they were hired by a, a guy at the university who was wanted to help him go find uh, an owlbear, uh, which uh-huh. would, of course, be Moog. So maybe someday that story will materialize but prequels can uh-huh. be can be tricky to do so and i'm a very slow writer so we'll see if it gets done sure you know um i think and you're talking now about like delving into the past of um of the band of saga and singing on their adventures and i think something that's that's really enjoyable about the book is that there is this immense sense of history between the characters you know the fact that they can always refer back to these prior adventures whether that's as a joke or whether that's to sort of establish more strongly the bond between them um i don't know I, that wasn't even really a question <laughs> i was just saying something i liked about the book i've got the question out that though which is did you have kind of a do you have you know in your back catalog a rough sketch of like yeah i think they did this and then they had this adventure or were you kind of like i'm just going to bring up whatever reference serves the plot the scene we're in um mostly i was kind of just winging it 
um, as far as more like adventure stuff goes. And when it comes to very specific hijinks, it was more based on uh, what I was reading and seeing in interviews about rock bands at the time. Um, so some of the things they got up to were direct references to that kind of stuff. Like when they go to the riot house, uh, which is, um, I think I call it Wyatt's rest is what it's actually called the riot house, um, which is based on the Hyatt in this very specific one in California that was called the riot house. And, uh, and the things that went on there were just crazy. And even like when, when these bands would go to the hotels, like there's a story about Gabriel riding a horse up the stairs or riding, you know. And that's kind of reference to John Bonham from Led Zeppelin. He rode a motorcycle through the halls of the hotel um, or people throwing mattresses off the balconies, you know, and that's exactly things that, that really happened. So, you know, these bands got up to some crazy stuff. So I just kind of use that as a, as a point of reference. And when you dive into sort of the history of like real life bands, do you tend to, re- do you go more kind of autobiographies or do you kind of watch documentaries about them? What's your kind of window when you kind of look into that stuff? Um, usually, I mean, there's definitely like a lot of articles that I read. I only read one book. It was called What You Want Is In The Limo, I think. Um, and it was phenomenal, actually. It was a great, great insight into all that kind of stuff. At one point, for about two pages, it lists all the bands that were currently touring in the United States during this one, like with 1971 or something. And, you know, even at the time, with my rudimentary knowledge of 70s bands... I was like, I've heard of every single one of these people for two pages straight. Like, it was truly some sort of crazy golden age um, with these bands just kind of roving, roving around. You know, they, it wasn't like today where they booked their very specific, you know, concerts and travel with their big entourage. It was them piling into a van and going uh, and hoping wow. someone showed up. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was mostly kind of, or like or YouTube interviews or just concerts and things like that. Sure. Duncan, would you like to move on to the next question? See, what we've got in front of us is actually our phones and we've got Google Doc and Geordie's literally highlighting from you like, Duncan, now you're going to do this. Now you're going to ask him that. Like, okay. Excellent. Well planned. I, I, Duncan's given me way too much credit. I'm, I'm trying to use psychic powers to, to make him do what I want. <laughs> uh, so I know we spoke this really early, but I do just want to circle back to this. Big fan of the cover art. Was it sort of, did that come mostly from your editor? How did you first kind of have that interaction? Did it come that develop? Did you look at the first print and go, no, thank you. The captain needs to look a bit more like this. Or did it first come through the post and you're like, yes, thank you. Perfect. Well, when, you, when you're a brand new author, you get absolutely, even when, like, when you're a you know big time author, I don't think you get any say in your cover art whatsoever, usually. Um, and so I knew I kind of wouldn't. And at the time, my title was just the band and they were trying to find something different for it. And I didn't. I thought I was going to win that battle, and I think my editor knew I was going to lose that battle. And so, <laughs> as like a way to soften the blow, uh, she had seen. I think she kind of delved into like my Instagram, where even just like I think the the night before, I got a call from my agent saying we have this offer from Orbit. Um, I had posted these two books that I came home with from the bookstore that were Richard Anderson books, uh, Mirror Empire uh, by Cameron Hurley, and then The Emperor's Blades by Brian Staveley. Um, <laughs> And I was also playing Guild Wars 2 at the time, which at the time, um, my Richard Anderson was a, the art, main artist for Guild Wars 2, and it looks just like his art the whole game. Um, and so I think she looked into that and thought, well, I'm going to do this guy a favor. If we're going to like not let him name his book, we should at least get him a cover artist <laughs> that he likes. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm pretty picky about cover art because I'm someone who my whole life I try to get non-fantasy readers to read fantasy books. And so if it's got, a you know, just a screaming wizard shooting a lightning bolt on the cover, 
um, it's just shooting itself in the foot as far as reaching a broader audience, you know? Um, ah. And so I, even though my cover ended up being pretty fantasy, but as soon as they got Richard Anderson, I thought, like, thank God, at least I'll like my cover, even if I don't like ah. my title. Because for a while there, I was like, I know I'm not going to like my cover. It's going to be super fantasy. I'm going to hate my title, and I just hope people read the book. Um, but I ended up, they, you know, they suggested Kings of the Wild, and I loved it. And obviously my Richard Anderson, I just absolutely love his art. And I think the one for Bloody Rose is even better. And, and the way do you see the one for the third book? It's been done for years. I just need to write a book worthy of it now. Um, but yeah, he's, he's phenomenal. Unfortunately, he doesn't, he can't do many covers anymore because now he's a Marvel concept artist. So see, I never want to just drop in this anecdote and like Bloody Rose is an amazing cover. And I think it does get across the the theme and the vibe of that book brilliantly. Yeah. Um, but I put it in my on my bookshelf, and obviously on the spine it's just in the UK one. It's Rose and it's her red hair. Yeah. And my partner walked into the room and went, "Why do you have a Paddington book on the shelf?" <laughs> like, no, but makes you read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You they don't, they, think. The, UK, the US spine or US spines are a bit different. Oh no, they're not. They still have the same thing. I'm just. Let me pluck one up for you to, just to show you, even though this obviously won't be in the podcast. But so they, uh, they do still yeah, have it. I see your point. But yeah, this is a rare case where I actually I think I like I like the U.S. version of the book better. Usually, I like the U.K. versions of books better. Um, but the U.S. The U.K. U.K. one's a bit smaller. Obviously, it's all the spines the same color as the front of the book. Um, it's a bit smaller uh, and more compact, whereas the U.S. one's a bit broader and kind of has a grainy feel to it and mm. but they're both beautiful covers and it's a rare case where actually they didn't usually the covers between north or like uk and the u.s are different artists completely yeah. um so this is one of those rare cases where they didn't uh they didn't even think about it and then and that's the case with a lot of brian stavely books too like he's got a u.s artist that's richard anderson and then they totally change they take away that cover in the in the uk um, but pretty much every country that's translated the book, except for maybe two, have used that same cover, which is amazing, but also disappointing because I wanted to see all these bizarre takes on the Kings of the Wild cover. Oh, so kind of latching on to then, it's been sold all over the world. You know, it has your success. Do you mind what I say? You've been successful? I've been talking about that statement. statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, was there a moment, like a particular like milestones in sales or with your editor or a certain prize and award where you were just like, yes. Now I'm a success. Well done, me. Um, it kind of was like a slow, gradual thing, and uh, and through the process of, uh, you know, being an aspiring writer for so long and getting rejected on that first book so many times, um, I developed this thing where, and even with like, I almost had an agent for Kings of the Wild, and then you know I thought I had him, and then he said no, so that was just like a fall off a cliff disappointment. Um, that I don't, I don't really react to negative news that terribly and nor do I react to great things that favorably anymore. So it's like, I can be happy about things for 15 minutes and then it's just back to normal life. But I remember there was a time right before my book came out where I was reading a book, um, and I was like looking forward to the second one and then discovered that it had only sold 900 copies and it is on on bookstore like in on bookshelves in North America and in the UK it had only sold 900 copies and i thought how can that be like we only hear of these huge mega sellers selling you know hundreds of thousands or if not millions of copies and so i had no concept of what success was 
right up until like months before my book actually came out. Um, now I know that like if your book sells 5,000 copies, you get to write another book. Like you just do. And so ah. few books actually do that. It's crazy and you wouldn't believe it. Um, yeah. And so obviously, like right before my book came out, I was a bit more, I suddenly, um, you know, revised my ideas of what success was. Um, uh-huh. and even when Kings of the Wild came out, like I didn't get a big advance for it. And I, for the next three years, uh, you know, all while writing Bloody Rose, I was working in restaurants, serving tables. Um, you know, if anyone imagines that getting a book deal changes their life that drastically, like maybe one in a million, but usually it just uh-huh. doesn't. Um, so eventually got to the point where it had sold well enough that I could write full time. But, but that's also not like a forever thing either, because that, that those royalties decline every year. And, you know, sure. if I don't write another book, then it gets to the point where it's like, well, well I better look into good restaurants in my neighborhood. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you and I, I have been extremely fortunate, however, like with my uh-huh. editor, with my agent, with the, how the marketing went and just the fact that the book seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Um, yeah, I was, very, I was, I was lucky. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a very scary game, you know, any kind of writing, any kind of creation. And, um, and so well done for you for not only for for your luck and for the fact that you've written this great book and also for your perseverance because you've spoken about your magnum opus <laughs> yeah and um can you tell us a little bit about how you know you mentioned that you learned so many things writing that book yeah what would you say you took away from the process of creating this i believe you 1200 page novel uh the, the i mean the old one mm-hmm. uh the old one was i mean when i first finished it like kings of the wild i think at the end clocked in at 130,000 words, um, uh-huh. 120 when I first started, when I first wrote it and my editor, my agent took it down to a hundred. Um, but my first book is called the fireborn. It was like 350,000 words. It was massive. Yeah. Um, because wow. at the time in the nineties, it was, you know, you're reading Robert Jordan books that were huge. Yeah. Or Steven Erickson books that were huge. Uh, and th- those kind of books just don't, unless your name is Brandon Sanderson, they don't really sell that uh-huh. much anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, I mean, the God, the number of lessons I learned is just as far as like dialogue goes and pacing goes. And the most important one of all, though, is finding your own voice uh, and not writing to kind of like write a book that's like your favorite authors, which I was 100 percent doing, um, trying to be Guy Gabriel Kay, trying to be, you know, Stephen Erickson. Um And so once I wrote a book that was just like from my that only I could write ultimately you know, because it was told in my own particular voice, then that was when I found success. So we're approaching the end of the year. We've, uh, at the time of this recording, it's just turned to December. Um, looking back over the year that's come, you know, we're a book club. We're all about looking back and talking about books. Are there any books that were really special to you this year that you would say, hey, I think people should check these out? Um, God, tons of them, tons of them. I read pretty voraciously. I mean, this one's not from this year, and I do recommend it a lot, but it's called The Black Tongue Thief. Um, okay. If you, if you haven't read it yet, it's it's uh, it was edited by my original editor for Kings of the Wild. She's since moved to tour from Orbit. Um, and it is just a phenomenal book. Like, it is... Uh. I almost every page I was either laughing or just in awe of a, a beautiful turn of phrase. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal, it's a great book, the black tongue thief. Uh, and it's got a black prequel, it's got a prequel and then two more books coming out, uh, in the future. Um, but let's see, I mean, God, I've been on a, it's like a sci-fi kick these days. I recently read the player of games, uh, by Ian M. Right. Banks. Yes. 
which is terrific. Um, and then even like... Is that your first foray into Ian Banks? No, I had read the book Matter years and years and years ago. And I remember loving it until the end. And then the end sucked. <laughs> and I was like, this is a climax? This is awful. And I, but I, I never, it wasn't like this is a bad author. I just thought I hated this. Um, mm. And so I always knew he was a great author. And I knew I wanted to get back to him. Uh, and so I had a friend that said, oh, Player Games is the one that you'd like the most. Uh, yeah. And so I just a matter of kind of like finding it and finding time to read it. So I just recently I saw it in a bookstore and it was super cheap. So I was like, oh, I'll grab it. Uh, uh-huh. And I loved it. And I've got uh, Use of Weapons here. I've had it, Use of Weapons for years. So I'm going to read that one uh-huh. uh, in the future as well. Now I'm reading a book called A Fire Upon the Deep by Werner Vinge, which is an old one. Uh, it's from the 90s. But uh-huh. I remember a few years ago I looked up what the, what the greatest space opera book of all time was. And this book, throughout all the lists, was generally the consensus of being the best. And I read, read it at the time, and I remember I got about a third of the way into it, and it was great, but then I think maybe a new Patrick Rothfuss book came out, and I read that instead. Mm. I think I think our pal Giacomo told us to read that book for our podcast, Duncan, actually. Fire he did, it. and I had to really sadly break it to him that we were a fantasy podcast <laughs> well it's got a very a very fantasy element to it because uh, uh, at least half the book if not more uh, takes place where a ship has crashed on a world where it's like medieval times and the people this is the thing that always stuck with me is that I need to go back to this book because I've never stopped thinking about it or telling people how crazy this idea was the race of people there are like long kind of like a long neck dogs whose persona is split into a pack so there's usually about if there's too few of them if there's only like one or two or three of them one or two of them let's say they're literally like animals but if there's like three to seven of them they're like a human being and so when someone comes into the room it's like oh you know flenzer came into the room one of them poured himself a scotch one of them went to the window and looked out one of him sat in a chair so you've got all these like different facets of the same personality um, and right. then obviously, like guards in this book are like a, like one person strung out through a thousand guards, so they're just uh. like dumb, but they can do their job kind of thing. Uh, so <laughs> That's it's, really it's interesting. you know it's a book that will I think appeal to fantasy readers as well. Um, and then speaking of books, that I don't I, I think I think this is called YA. I sometimes don't like calling books YA because too sure. many books that have like a female main character who's in their teens gets called yeah. YA, mm-hmm. and it's not YA. But um, the book Iron Widow, uh, which I audio booked, um, uh-huh. you know, which is kind of like a young Chinese girl, uh, you know, pseudo Chinese, it's fantasy, but uh, in like these giant mechs, I loved that book. And Yes, that's definitely on my list. I really want to check, find time to check that out. It was good. Yeah, it, was, it was my first book with like that had like a legitimate love triangle in it. And I'm talking a full triangle, not just mm-hmm. one person. Two people like one person. Always just fine with people who use that phrase. Everyone liked everyone in the triangle. And, mm-hmm. and, and I never read a book like that before. And it was, it was just a cool, really cool idea and a cool book. And, and uh, I know there's more coming out in the series. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. One question that we often have this debate throughout our book club, and I would love to get your kind of opinion on it, is that where do you draw the line between what you define as fantasy and what you define as science fiction. You can pick it with books or definitions. Yeah, I mean, the line is pretty blurred, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if, if people are going into space, it's probably science fiction. Damn it. But, but like... It's okay, you can have the wrong answer, Jordy, it's fine. But the thing and is, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like, And there's no, there really is no point 
like th- mm-hmm. those whole things were were devised so that people could put things like you know in a book in bookstores. You mm-hmm. know, they were literally made for bookstores, and that's why for a long time a lot of authors you couldn't write if you wrote a fantasy book you weren't allowed to write even like ten. 15 years ago, you couldn't move into science fiction if you wanted to, unless you were like, you know, Stephen King, because your publisher would just be like, no, people are not going to, they're not going to know who you are. It's a whole different part of the bookstore. Whereas now so much shopping is done online, um, you know, through either Audible or Kindle and stuff like that. Uh, it doesn't matter. You can write any genre you want and it's your name that that's going to do it. So I think the lines will continue to be blurred. Uh, and yeah, they probably shouldn't even be there in the first place. Like, and I love both genres, technically, but, you know, mm. it's all make-believe. <laughs> There's no denying that. If only there was a, a useful word we could use to say that something was make-believe and maybe write some books about it. <laughs> but. But. Um, now, we're coming to the end of the interview now. And I have to ask, are there any questions that you wish uh, we asked you? Hmm. No, no, not really. I mean, God, I've I've... I've been asked a lot of questions. I mean, I, I really do love the music questions, although I don't, I also like, I also like sometimes fear that they're going to risk alienating people who don't listen to like that kind of music or know that genre. So it's important to me when I'm talking about it to, you know, express that, you know, people like my editor had no clue about any of the music uh-huh. references, but it's, you know, a book that's enjoyable regardless. Um, uh-huh. But no, I thought all the questions were great. Oh, look, there's the Black Tongue Thief. I can see it behind him. Yeah, I've actually got two copies of it. I've got like a, I've got like an early kind of advanced copy of it, and then I've got that copy. My name's almost on it more than the author, because <laughs> I, I barely. I mean, I think it's tied because there's two quotes for me. There's one on the cover, one on the back, and then one one. There's a the tagline says for fans of Joe Abercrombie or Nicholas Eames, um, and yet someone mentioned his name in a blurb, and otherwise I was like, oh, I almost made it on this more time than him. But there's also there's a special edition coming out from Midworld Press pretty soon that I was asked to write a foreword for, um, which I didn't have time to write it. But I was like, hell yeah, I will. A because I love the book, and B because who gets to write a foreword? Like pretty much Neil Gaiman, sure. Alan Watts, and nobody else. So that's that's, that's distinction right now. Crazy, yeah. I was like, I better, I better make some time for this. So yeah, it's uh, it's a great book. It's a great book. Uh-huh. Duncan, do you have another question for us? I absolutely do not. Thank you so much. Uh, Nicholas for coming and having this interview with us oh the pleasure is mine yeah thank you for asking me I appreciate it thanks for reading my book too (laughs) well we we look forward to uh, we look forward to finishing up our review of it and I look forward to finishing the last 25% of Bloody Rose I'm having a great time so far excellent make sure you put some meatloaf uh, for crying out loud on there (laughs) yeah you'll know know that you're supposed to be listening to it when there's literally a line that says uh, her heart was crying out loud and my editors wanted me to change it and change it to something else. And I was like, no, it's there because it has, because it's like an homage to that song. So, Thank you so much. It's been not just a really interesting interview, but it's been really fun. Such a great time hanging out with you. And um, we look forward to seeing more of your work when it comes along and um, being there behind you. Thanks thank so you, much, Thank Nick. you both. What a nice guy. Well, thank you so much, Nick. It was a real pleasure. And now back to the show. Duncan, it's the part of a show where we decide what book we're going to read next. No, it's not. It's the part of the show where you announce the fact that you decided a long time ago what book we're going to have to read next. 
That's right. So in our personal lives, you know, we've talked about that a ton this episode. Duncan and I play a lot of role-playing games together. That's how we spend most of our time together when we aren't doing this podcast. And um, so many of our games have come to an end. I think it's time to start a new one. That's why I've decided to start playing the Dune RPG. So Duncan, the next book we're going to read is Dune. Sorry, sorry, I must have misheard you. Um... I, I think you pronounce Bloody Rose uh, with a bit of a... Oh, no, no, we, we'll, we'll come back to it, front. you know, we'll come back to it another time. Okay, in that case, I need to go and send you a definition on fantasy. It's got wizards. It's, a, it's about a wizard. Dune, because uh, as my definition is always done, if you can roll back the clock in a sci-fi universe and arrive at something that is completely ordinary to our universe, then I think it's science fiction. Hmm. Whereas, and Dune is literally that is an extension of our universe into the far future. All right, all right. Ah, fine. No Dune. But when we play the Dune role-playing game, I'm going to get a bunch of facts wrong. It's going to be your fault. Fine. We'll read Bloody Rose. It's not like I already started reading it or anything. It's not like I already started yeah. reading it or anything. Okay, in that case, we'll see you everyone again in, in two weeks for our first December episode on Bloody Rose. See you then, people. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.